a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world, we'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. All right, Zero Limits listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, I have a guest. He currently re- resides in Spain, Mallorca, uh, a beautiful part of the world. I've actually been there a couple of times uh, when I'm doing my security stuff around the world. Beautiful part of the world. But this guy, he spent... A decent chunk of his career, or actually his whole career, in uh, two commando. Back then, four hour, and then it turned into two commando. And he's got an incredible story. Now, I've had a guy on previously, Kyle Schmidt, and this guy's got a similar story uh, where he got the the addiction to drugs, alcohol, etc. However, you know, he'd go back on deployment, be clean do the job as a professional, get the job done, go back to Australia and just turn it on and party. And that was his way of coping with things. But we'll definitely get him to talk about it and share his story. So, John Wynn, mate, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks, Matty. Uh, yeah, it's good to be on here, man. Like um, I always start with saying this, but I love like getting on here. I love um, sharing my story, my journey, my experience, because I think uh, people have something to take from this. So I love doing this, man. And, um, yeah, I'm a pretty open book. Uh, but, yeah, man, it's good to be on. Yeah, exactly, mate. Like we've uh, we've been chatting for a, a few months, actually. Uh, it's just timings and you know different. Obviously, you're what seven, eight hours behind, and you were sick, and I was sick, and you were sick, and yeah. then far out. It's never ending. Yeah, man. It's um, just sort of ping ponging back and forth, and it was eventually going to happen. Uh, but it's just one of those things here, like the. Um, it sounds like the sort of sickness was getting around Australia. Is this was getting around here? Yeah, it's bizarre in summer like flus and viruses and COVID's back here now and it's uh, sort of never-ending. But, um, yeah, I'm back, back, my health's back on and uh, I'm ready to go. Yeah, nice, mate, nice. Mate, uh, as, as I spoke about just uh, quickly, you know, you had a bit of a, you know, a wild career within the Defence Force, you know, an absolute professional side of things, but then that crashing side of things, you know, with that, uh, the, the, the addiction and side of things, which we'll definitely talk about because it's just – 
it's incredible. And it's, we, you know, we spoke about this offline just quickly is that a lot of general everyday civilian will have no idea about this story or this, you know, what, what our soldiers went through uh, during their service, especially during that time of, you know, 2001 through to 2000, you know, 15, 13, 14, 15, where it was just bonkers. If you didn't get a trip between those periods, I don't know, you're probably, I don't know, malingering or something. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, man, it was a very, it was a very busy time. Yeah. Um, like for me personally, like I, every year, just as soon as I got to the unit, fast tracked through my um, DRS trip, 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 prepare for trip, trip, prepare for trip, trip, prepare for trip, and um, and then a little bit of downtime and go again. Uh, it was really high tempo, and so like I, I was um quite new, but there's some of the older guys who they've been doing it for two years before me. <laughs> it's a long time to be going at it, and psychologically, uh, it's it's very very hard. Yeah, very hard exactly, mate. And it's not a normal job. That's what I want to start off with. It's not you know everyday twenty three year old brick laying out at, you know down at uh, Mayfield here in Newcastle. You know it's uh, doing the 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 big boy dirty stuff. Like it's it's bad stuff in a way. Yeah, it's high risk, high risk, high very reward. high risk. Um, and that that high risk comes at a cost. Uh, this is not you know something we go on a job and. It potentially is your last, and that was the reality, yeah? and that's how I sort of seen it, and sort of justified some of the, my behaviours back early. That there's a good chance I'm not coming back because I've lost mates. Um, I've been, you know, um, yeah, been part of that, and uh, that uh, takes a toll, and you need to recover from that. And the way the tempo was, there was no recovery. So yeah. I, I'm pretty sure they changed the way they do things now. I'm pretty sure, like they're not they're not doing the trips like they used to, but towards the end. I believe you couldn't just go back on another trip. You had to have decompression for a year, two years. Where when I was there, it was like get the boys back over. Who can? Um, who's still not sort of showing signs that that's affecting them? And so you just lie. You wouldn't you wouldn't feel like psychological correctly and um, get back on the trip. So there's no stigma. You get the cash. You get to be a bit of a rock star, and that's just how it was. It was accepted. Yeah, exactly, mate. And you just said it there. I've said it on multiple other podcasts. A few other guests have said it as well. You told the psychologist, psychologist exactly what they wanted to hear, just so you could uh, deploy on the next rotation. Yeah, yeah. That, it's that was no um, like everyone did the same. Everyone did the same. The guys, well, the guys who did come out and say something and say they were having issues, you know, they would be removed or they uh, wouldn't go back at all. And essentially, there was a, there was a little bit of a stigma. I would say, personally, like I, I was I was real green. I was new, but there was a bit of a stigma, like uh, like he's starting to crack. So you didn't. Um, it was sort of just uh, accepted. I guess you just you just lie. You don't tell them really what's going on. You don't tell them the incidents um, because you think that could affect you. Yeah, and when you're young and you want money and you want to keep doing what you love doing, of course you're not going to say anything. Now I see it totally differently. <laughs> I, you know, I should have spoke about that stuff um, and not have to bring up, you know, four or five years later, bring up shit which happened on those those first few trips. But live and learn. Yeah, well, we did. We definitely live in a different world, as you know, mate. Back then, it was, it was, you know, if you showed any type of weakness, then you were pretty much ostracised anyway, booted out yeah, of wherever definitely. you were. And so, but yeah, well, mate, we'll definitely touch on that. But before we do, mate, let's get back to younger days. Now, I'm here in Newcastle, and I understand that you were born here in Newcastle, mate. So, mate, run yeah. us through those younger days. Well, yeah, I was born in Belmont uh, back in 86. 
so we did, um, my family, um, my dad's side, are all fishermen. So they're around the um, Lake Macquarie. Um, my grandpa had a co-op there. Uh, we did like two or three years there. Obviously, I don't really remember them. But uh, all my family's still around there. They still fish. They still do all that. Um, uh, I've got four, uh, three siblings. So I've got an older brother, two younger sisters. We're all born there. Um, but then my old man got out of being a fisheries, um, a fisherman, and then he went fisheries inspector, like a fish cop, I guess. So every two years we had to move. Um, the the sort of first part of my childhood, I remember, were at Deniliquin. I don't know if you know where that is. Yeah, it's right, right down yeah, in the big yeah. Denny. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Deniliquin for two years and Narendra was the next place for two years on the Murrumbidgee. Um, so we moved around quite a bit, uh, and what I, I sort of remember not not liking moving around so much. Yeah, it was really um, a bit of instability, um, and yeah, like a, I don't have the fondest memories of childhood. Actually, um, old man drank a bit, and a bit of a dysfunctional family, which is you know, I look back and it was actually quite common. <laughs> this type of uh, these types of families in country areas and. Um, now I've, now I've actually got a, I've got a daughter, uh, and I know managing one kit with work and my training and everything is quite hard to do and it can be quite stressful. So, um, the way dad sort of handled things, I guess I look back and he drank a lot because he was trying to cope with everything. Yeah. So, and, uh, like I'm, I'm 37 soon. So like I'm a 30, 35 when my daughter was born, my parents were, 20, 21, and yeah. I think they had had four kids by the time Dad was 25. So we're all one year apart pretty much and totally different world, totally different world band to have those many kids. And, um, yeah, um, so Dad just, yeah, Dad was, um, yeah, just uh, a bit rough, a bit, um, I look back and, you know, I don't, I've had to sort of forgive a lot of things and just understand it was different times and it was just totally different, man. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, mate. You know, we're similar ages. I'm 39, and I understand that that era of growing up. That's where, obviously, there was no alcohol laws. There was no, you know, you could sit in the front seat. You know, pretty much no seatbelts. You know what I mean? Like it was just a different time. And as you said, your parents are quite young to have that many kids. So far, mate, I'm the same. You know, I've got a couple of kids, and far out, it can be it can be stressful. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I'm. Uh, once you hear sort of my story, if you haven't, if you don't really know it, um, I've been through a lot of therapy now. I've done a lot of work, and I had to do this to get to where I am now. And uh, I had to go, and you know, a lot of the, a lot of our issues we have are from childhood, and it's, it's how we're shaped, our blueprint, and our uh, our mannerisms, how we do things and cope with stuff. Really old comes from our childhood, and uh, sort of the role models we have. And I've had to just accept, forgive, um, and it's you know, it used to sort of define me and um, it was my sort of um, it's how I seen everything but now now I have the power to see it differently now I can actually change the way I am and uh, I know deep down like I'm still that little kid but now I'm an adult and I actually have the choice to, to do things differently and um, not be sort of that shy timid uh, anxious um, vulnerable uh, kid. Yeah, man, it was just totally different time, and I, I just had to forgive. Um, but yeah, it was, it was totally, totally different. The alcohol consumption, the you know, the dysfunctional families, and the 
you know, incidents in homes and stuff like that and no one really intervening where now, you know, you hear something going on next door and there's, you know, the beating and that going on, like cops get called, people <laughs> people step in where it never happened back then. It was just yeah. to turn a, turn a blind eye. It, again, it's just different, totally changing. Yeah, exactly, mate, exactly. Now, in regard to schooling, mate, you know, you guys were, you said you're moving around a quite a lot. You know, did you have any stable schooling when you got a little bit older? Yeah, so like I did like kindergarten to year one to Nilikon, I believe it was, Narendra was like year one to year two. Uh, Two to three year. And then we moved up to near Port Macquarie. So a place called Loriton, uh, which is part of Camden Haven. So uh, we moved up there when I was three, uh, year three. So what's that? Nine, sort of ten. Uh, and then we stayed, we stayed there for all my uh, the rest of my childhood. So dad got actually got a posting to McLean, Yamba. Uh, and then we stayed in that area because my grandparents were there. Uh, it was a good area to grow up in. And uh, we we stayed there until I was I was there till I was nineteen twenty when I joined the the military, but um, that was the first time I actually stayed in one spot. Got long term friends, um, played in sport where I, I you know was more than with mates for more than two years um, in a row. Uh, but so I sort of identify as coming from Camden Haven. That's that's why that's my bringing. And um, look, I'd love to go back there one day, but. Um, what sort of life's here and uh, the way real estate is in Australia, it's probably not <laughs> Yeah, mate. Probably not going to be an option for me. <laughs> <laughs> mate, siblings, uh, are we talking all yep. boys, girls? So I've got an older brother. Uh, he's yep. one year older than me, Nathan, and then I've got a, a sister who's one year younger, Alyssa, and then Tamika is two, nearly three years younger than me. So we're all pretty much just one year apart. And you probably hung out with your brother a bit more than the girls? Um. Yeah, when we were young, uh, and then when we grew up, we're we're different. Uh, so I'm I'm the sporty one. Um, I I got opportunities when I was younger because of my sport. Uh, and growing up in a bit of a dysfunctional family, my 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 siblings have different ways of handling things, um, but they they still live there. Like they're good good people. Um, but we we were different, very different. Um, and they had always a little bit jealous of me with my sporting and my endeavours. Um, which you know, my sporting was really a coping mechanism for, for how I sort of grew up. And um, yeah, like we were close. We don't we don't speak a heap anymore. But obviously, when we get older and we drift apart, and we've got families. Yeah, yeah. It, when it, when you come to schooling and just uh, living outside of school, you guys were just free range, just cruising on your pushies and just loose. You know, back by uh, sundown. Yeah, I, I was. I was. Um, my siblings, not not really. Nathan was always uh, at home on the Game Boy uh, or the, the yeah. N- N- Nintendo, Atari, and the Mega Drive, and, and yeah. sort of went through then the Sony. But now I was the I was really the only one who went out. Um, was biking, getting lost, and um, <laughs> you know you have to be home by the time the lights are on in the street, which is five thirty, and then even then that got relaxed. And yeah, and I was actually having this conversation with my wife yesterday about you know leaving my daughter when she gets older, like. I said, I should be able to walk home from school. She's like, no, no way. I'm like, back when I was a kid, like you could yeah. disappear all day. Like and get back at 9 o'clock at night and <laughs> no one really cared. It was just totally different, right? <laughs> yeah, mate, yeah. 10 times different. I, again, I've, I've spoken about this with, you know, just some of my mates. I remember my dad used to write a note and send me down to the servo, you know, for a pack of Winnie Blues and, you know, stop at the bottle, grab a six-pack of beer and, 
walk back, you know, would have $3 left over and change. You could buy a couple of red, you know, a handful of, you know, a big big brown paper bag of, you know, red frogs or something. And yeah, 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 yeah. Fuck, mate. That's good old days. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, the good, good old days, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you didn't, when kids didn't smoke or drink alcohol, it just wasn't a thing. You went out and just tore up the streets, played in the creek, you know, just did whatever. Yeah, man. Like in, like fixing your own bikes, um, building tree houses, like, Wrangling like um, I remember collecting crabs and stuff like this as pets, yeah. <laughs> like uh, blowing up litter boxes. Yeah, 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 <laughs> <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah, but um, you, yeah, you, you can't get away with that now. But I, I was um, my when we moved up to Fort uh, Fort Macquarie, uh, Lauriton, and um, about a year or two after we got there, my like parents actually uh, bought the liquor store of my grandparents. So with alcohol, I grew up with that. Mm-hmm. When I was knee high to a grasshopper, so alcohol it's always uh, always been in my life. Ever like I remember at Christmas when I was like five six, I was grandchildren sitting down at the table getting a little little uh, champagne glass. We'll add it some Asti Rigadonna, glass some sh- champagne at like five six, and uh, it is different world, totally different world now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mate, yeah, right. So in regard to family history within the military, you know, I guess a lot of us have it. Do you have any uh, history? No, um, I believe so. I thought there might have been my. I thought my grandfather um, grandfather could have, and then I sort of looked into it. He well, he didn't actually have have to go World War One. He was um, he actually just passed away last year, the year before, at one hundred and five, hundred and six. Oh, so he had a good inning. Yeah, he had a, had a really good innings. That's um, the effects of a fisherman who's had a, a pretty stress-free life and um, a really chill sort of um, way of living and living living on the beach. So they were at um, um, the Tukli. They, they oh, had, yeah, a, yep, a, had, a, had a beach. Yeah, had a beach house there. So, um, but he he didn't actually have to go to war because he was a fisherman. So that was critical, like a critical trade. Critical. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. People needed food, so he didn't have to go. I believe. Um, my auntie's husband was in the reserves, uh, but no, there's no, there's no. Uh, oh, my 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 mum's grandfather did national service, but he didn't didn't deploy anywhere, so that was just mandatory. He was from out at Galagenbone, so out in like rural uh, New South Wales. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so he uh, he did national service, so he spent a bit of time in Singo, but yeah, no real um, no military apart from that. And where, so, where does this interest come in? Is it are we just movies, TV shows? Man, um, so I actually, what happened was when I was about 19, 20, uh, living in a small town, uh, it's much bigger now, but um, most people, they got uh, uh, trained, all my mates got apprenticeships when, when we were you know, coming out of school, like year 10, year 11. Um, I didn't really know what to do with myself, but I, um, I found a magazine, which my brother had. My brother was trying to get in the military, didn't, wasn't successful, but I actually found a magazine which had in it um, about a, a program direct entry for special forces, and uh, this really attracted me because I had a sporting background from when I was younger. It was um, a way for me to get out of the, the town, uh, and it was essentially a um, like a high achieving, like a bit of a um, yeah, a high achieving role, I, I, I guess. And the so I remember reading it and thinking um, like. In the description, it said that you needed to have a sporting background, 
and uh, high aptitude. And I never finished school at that at that time, so I was like, oh, high aptitude, probably not. But the sporting background, yes. But that was really how I got sort of um, the last sort of nail in the coffin, which drove me towards it. But after doing a lot of, which I mentioned before, a lot of therapy and a lot of work about how I was shaped when I was younger, this being a, a hero and being someone who was a protector has been something which I grew up with, um, with the sort of incidents which were going on at home when I was really little, uh, trying to protect mum from dad and um, uh, that that really shaped me. So I remember growing up watching um, military movies, watching firefighters, cops, I was like I was really in awe of that sort of role and I wanted to be a hero of some type, yeah, and um, essentially I sort of lost that through my, my teenage years because I was um, a high-level javelin thrower, so I was at the Institute of Sport and then I got injured at that, couldn't go to World Champs when I was 18, went back to playing rugby league and then when I found this magazine, it just um, clicked and I was like, ah, this is – and 9-11 had um, happened just a few years before. Uh, Afghanistan, Iraq was happening and there was um, – it was. I felt at the time it was a noble thing to do. I had the capabilities. I had the um, the. I knew I had the athletic background to be able to do something like this, and that was really, really what um, drew me towards it. What year so a combination of things? What year we talking? So I enlisted. I, oh, yeah, I got in in October two thousand and seven. Oh, so I started. The, yeah, right. yeah, I I started the process. A year, eighteen months before that, when I first applied, and then had to go through. All the, the processes, yeah. Yeah. So just going back, mate, you spoke about nine eleven, and, you know, the, the Iraq war kicked off. The Aussie army was already in Timor. They did Solomon's, um, you know, Somalia and that in the 90s and Rwanda. So in regard to nine uh, 11, mate, because like, it was a defining moment. I speak about it in every podcast I've done. Is it was a defining moment. Did you have any concept of exactly what it was about? And I remember when it happened, I was going down to a state championships for athletics and it was the morning of it. And I remember we went down, we're about to leave actually to do the like of the five, six hour drive. And I remember seeing it on the news and um, I would have been, what's that, like 13, 12, 13, 14, something, so around that age. And uh, I remember this was, it was huge. Like it had a real big emotional response within me. Um, and now I think about it. There was actually part of me who was sort of um, drawn towards that to, to to maybe take take part in this, but I was I was too young. But um, as it turned out, not long after, like I ended up going and, and sort of not even putting those those uh, those um, those two things together. But I knew it was a big thing, and I knew it was it was changing the way life was going to be. I, I knew that. I knew it was that big. The, the war on terror, um, these terror attacks. Yeah. I, understood it was going to be huge. I didn't know it was going to go for so long, but I didn't know it was going to take part, but it just sort of, it seems like it worked out that way. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny you say that because a lot of guys I've spoken to, uh, they thought they were going to miss the war. You know, it happened in 2001. <laughs> they thought, you know, it was going to be over in a year, kind of like the first Gulf War type thing. And But, you know, yeah. it ended up carrying on for 20-plus years. Did you know anyone sure. in the military as well? Like was there any any influence on that side of things or was just not just enlisted? and may not. No, oh, I think fuck. I was the I think I was like the first one in my in my area, in my group. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think there might have been a, maybe a few people from the area who went and just didn't make it, didn't even make mm. it through Kapuka. 
that I was the first one who went and did anything of this magnitude. I believe, which is wild because it's you weren't just joining the army; you're going direct entry special forces. And at this stage, two commando was literally just becoming two commando, two thousand seven yes. period. So, like, it's yeah, it's not like becoming a you know blanket folder. <laughs> you're going straight into the yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, man. So when I got in, we'll do four hour. We did uh, before I deployed. We did the um, so once I got my beret, fast selection got my beret. Um, we did the name change ceremony, and then we went we went to war for my first trip. So that's two thousand and nine. Yeah. So um, let's let's get back yeah. to the <clears throat> sorry the start yeah. of your train. Like I want to because obviously you got this yeah, fitness behind you. So you're a fit guy. You played footy. You did uh did the javelin, and you were really really good at it, which is uh, uh, really cool. And so back to the training, mate. How did you find Kapuka yep. advanced infantry training and stuff like that? Kapuka um, was a breeze. Um, I I was prepared before I even got there. Like I was, I knew, like when I go into anything, I know, I do my research behind. I know what what's required and that's sort of how I do so well now in my chosen sport. But back then I was ready, I was fit, I uh, had the show, Ted. Uh, I knew that like this was the part of, this is a process which I had to go through so the end result is going to war as a as a commando. So I knew that this is like it was a year all up. So Kapuka, a breeze. Like I like this. Uh, I didn't understand. I hadn't really worked um, in an environment or been part of where it was so disciplined and structure and routine. Turns out I, I love that and I need that and that's how I live my life now. But Kapuka was good. Then we went straight to Singo. So a little bit more freedom. Uh, this is where we got our infantry skills. So Kapuka three months, a singleton three months. That was a good experience. Um, so now we're just with grunts. We had a few um, uh, guys who were going to go on selection with this who had to uh, other course, so they had to come and do infantry training. That was pretty cool. Um, just did all the basic stuff. And then we finished that and went straight on to AOIT, so advanced infantry. So now we're on the sort of the next level up, um, and really the best thing about doing the AITs was I don't know, I don't think they do it now, but it was an opportunity for us to work and be around um, guys doing their JLC. I'm oh, sorry, um, their sub two. So guys who were from command um, from four AR to command um, in SASR who were doing their sub two, they come and did it with us, and we were their soldiers. So we got to do AITs with um, with guys who'd been to war. So they really prepared us, helped us, uh, give us insight what was, selection was going to be like, what war was going to be like. And we spent, I think, eight, ten weeks with them, uh, and they, they it, we had a bit of an advantage going into selection. Well, we didn't have the, the years of experience in the military, but we'd, we'd been hanging around these guys and they were telling us how it was. Like We're familiar with the M4. We knew how to use that. We knew tactics, things like this. So going into it, we had a um, bit of an advantage. But all that, three months Kapuka, three months Singo, two and a half months AOTs, a little bit of downtime and then straight on selection. <laughs> yeah, back yeah, back to back to Kapuka and uh, Singo. <clears throat> How many guys are we talking were DRS in, in your group? Okay, so Kapuka, there's probably around 40, I think. Oh, was there? Like a, I think around 40. Um, 
not there, there wasn't 40 that left there. <laughs> yeah. So we lost, yeah, probably around 40. Um, so we, there's two platoons. Uh, ours one was the DRS and then there was a sister platoon, which was made up of other corps and some infantry. But we're all the DRS guys and how it works is um, there's you've got to get through Kapuka and there's like an assessment. You've got to make sure you've passed everything. But guys essentially voluntarily just started pulling out. And I, I tell you, like that, they were the guys who were going to make it. They already had their beret. They had already <laughs> marched, marched into the <laughs> unit. And they were the first ones to go within one week, two weeks, three weeks, and they were just dropping here. They didn't have the staying power. They didn't. It's um, They were the, the showboaters, the, you know, the rock climbers, the, the bodybuilders. Like, they were the guys who just crumbled. It was the guys who were just quiet, who could just knuckle on and just keep keep going, do what they're told, don't question things, knowing that there's a there's a bigger picture here. But, um, there's a, maybe when we left Kapuka, maybe 20, high 20s, maybe 30. So we probably lost around 10. Yeah. That's just Kapuka. Yeah. That's it. Kapuka's not hard. It's not, it's, <laughs> no, it's no, not a hard place, no. yeah. But it's, 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 hard, it's hard for if you don't like being told what to do and – Oh, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. Those people that come out beating the chest at the start, yeah, they're the ones. It's, it's, really, drop it's out. literally, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. But, uh, <laughs> they just don't have the, the temperament and um, for, for that type of kick. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you go to Singo, mate, just like break it down for me with with the DRS side of things. You know, I'm regular infantry, so you know all my secos were infantry, regular infantry. For the DRS side of things, are you all your secos uh, X four R R? Is that how no, it is? No, no, no. They were just, just, just part of the, the training command just for the regular yep, military. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, do you know uh, Oh, yeah? He, he was one of the – he was um, – Oh, was he? Sections. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he come, he ended up doing selection with us. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, his we, name. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Delete yeah. that, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't know. I think he's still in, is he? I, I don't he know. Mate, he is. Uh, I saw him in uh, oh, Iraq. Right. Saw him in Iraq in 2016, I think, when I was contracting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but good. Yeah. Yeah, he's, a, he's a funny dude. <laughs> he's good, dude. Good dude. Yeah. But, um, yeah, mate, they were just regular, regular guys. Um, uh, they, they, they had knowledge. Uh, most of them had done an Iraq trip, I believe. Yeah. Good guys. Yeah, yeah. So, like, they, there were no um, – everyone was experienced back then. Yeah, yeah ex- <laughs> exactly. As you said that, mate, especially during that time is with the, well, m- most of the secos, uh, both in Kapuka and uh, IETs, everyone pretty much had a deployment up their sleeve. So it was a different time of training, which was good because people pass on that real life experience. Uh, yeah, I'm sure yeah definitely. Different back in the days. But so you move on to, you finish events, uh, infantry training, then you move on to the selection. The two commanders, yep. is that correct? Yep. Yes, ALTs had a bit of downtime and then selection course with everyone else in the army. So, yeah. That was around and, uh, September, I believe it was, 2008. How did you, you find that? That's about three weeks or so, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah. Back then, it was over a month. I think it was around 30, 33, 35 days. And I, I think I've said this before. I, I might be wrong, but it was one of the longest selection courses in the world at that stage because – you do. It's not just a selection course. You do the training, so you learn tactics on it, and then it's part of the selection course as well. Um, so you really get. Um, it's a really good. It's, it's a big test year because you only have so many safety breaches, and they make you tired, and they put you through um, all the drills. And 
you stuff up twice and you're off. Um, so, man, that was that was a really interesting time, which I really um, when things get tough in life now, and uh, especially with my training, things with life, how I got through addiction. When I can revert back to like a past selection course, uh, which is made to break you, and when you look at how many guys apply to do selection and then how many guys actually finish and then get their beret, it's, it's one in 300. Um, so it's not many guys who make it. And so when I when things get tough, I revert back to like I've done harder things and the selection course definitely <laughs> one of those things where some of those PT sessions uh, where just, you know, we're going to dudes quit. Like you have to, we have to get so many guys to quit before we finish. Um, and just un- the unknown, which psychologically is tough. Just we don't know when we're finishing. <laughs> those those things that it really um, helps helps me do tough things, which I do now. Yeah, right. Far out. There's, you know, a few guys have spoken about it, like John Dixon type thing. He spoke about. You know, the stretcher carries and stuff, you know, where, you know, his first or second trip in Afghanistan, he actually had to carry a body out, you know, like, and it all made sense to him. He's like, far out. This is the reason why we do stretcher carries is, you know, for yeah, the real it, shit like this. It's all, it's all real life. And I tell you, um, like doing, doing it in training when you carry you know, a body for real, like it's, it's fucking that hard and that heavy because you carry their armor, their weapons, like it's tough. Yeah. Um, so everything they chuck at you is real scenario yeah like one of the toughest things is the last three days is no food no sleep and like okay like when's that gonna happen yeah, yeah that's 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 a scenario which ha- happens in war like oh, we ran out of water for like a day <laughs> in the in the middle of Afghanistan like yeah. this shit happens like if you can't pass it in selection in, a, in an environment which is safe and like there's medics there if you if you collapse like if you can't do that how are you going to do this at war when if worse things are going to happen and it's life or death. So selection courses are necessary to, to cut away that those dead ends for the guys who just can't, can't hack it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you pass that three-week selection. How many guys, again, mate, run us through the numbers. How many guys started? How many guys finished? Look, so I, it's all alphabetical. You get your number. So my last name's Win. I was down towards the end. I think I was around 90, 89 or 90. Uh, by the end, we we had quite a few, I believe. I think it's around. I probably, I probably need to speak to one of my mates just to, to double check this, but it was around thirty, around there, so yeah, thirty, so maybe thirty-five. Still a big a number few. drop out. Yeah, we had a, a, a lot of guys. A lot of guys make it. Uh, ours was a really successful selection. Um, that is, yeah. So after that, then. Then the, all the um, reinforcement cycle starts. So all your skills, which then you're just going to lose more. So more, more guys are going to get cut along the way in there. Yeah. Uh, it's about- yeah, so you move on to your reinforcement cycle and then and now this, you know, again, for the listeners, is another, what, 12 months, nine to 12 months of training, which is segment training of, you know, uh, all your specialists, all commando training pretty much, you know, which includes CQB and all that water modules and everything. Yep, this week get all your skill sets to be a commando. So back then it was uh, I don't it wasn't quite nine months. I think it's around six or seven. So now it's I think it's a little bit longer. But basically, yeah, you, you get parachuting, uh, demolitions, ACQB, CQB, um, like I was a medic, roping, any uh, driving, anything which like to, to get your actual classification as a, and get your brain, you need to do all these skills. 
So that was good fun. Um, you get treated with a bit more respect. Um, you get given a bit more uh, space. Yeah, that was it was really good fun. That was a good time. But just course after course after course after course. So it was, it was, it was quite fun. It went fast, but really uh, quite stressful as well. How are your family? Did they come to your march out and stuff like that? Singo and Kapuka? Um, yeah, mum come to my parents come to Kapuka, parents come to Singo, I believe. Um, but then to going to the units, nah, nah, because yeah. it was we we had a I think by the time the end, the, there's probably around 20 of us who got raised. Um, and it was just a s- small little thing down in uh, Singo at the um, SFTC there. Just a real small thing because um, uh, we did that and essentially we went straight into the unit and straight to preparing for war. So that whole process happened fast. Yeah. During the reinforcement cycle now, I know a few guys struggle with the shooting component side of things, the CQB side of things because it is it is a pass or a fail. You know, you get two or three chances, yep. you know, especially when it comes to a safety breach. You can. Yeah. Uh, did you struggle with anything within the reinforcement cycle? Mate, no, not really. Um, I the way ours worked is you did the first thing was parachuting, which now they've changed that. It's like you, I don't you don't do parachuting first because you're going to lose a lot of guys. Get broken. <laughs> so <yeah>. we, <laughs> mate, uh, it was we we did a jump in zero loom, and they changed it now, so you can't you can't do zero loom jumps. And we in my stick, we lost half the guys, and then yeah. have to off off a year to the next round. Uh, to the next, uh, yeah, the reinforcement cycle. But no, I, I, I didn't really struggle. Uh, I enjoyed it. ACQB is probably the toughest. I did did really well at that. Um, my shooting was always okay. Like I always didn't have an issue with that. Like I, when you do a validation, you got to get you got to do that to pass. And I think my first two shoots were validation, so my house up, chilled, relaxed. I'm just waiting for everyone else to pass. But it is really high stressful, high demand. Um, you have to. And this really helps me with what I do now is really high heart rate, um, um, under a lot of stress, but you just still need to be able to think and not do silly things. Uh, and it's, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Really, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> now, just moving forward slightly, you know, you, we, we talk about earlier about your addiction to alcohol and drugs. When did your drinking career, I should say, when did that, when did that kick off? Was it when you joined the military? So going back to when I was a teenager, like a drunk of a weekend, um, that was. But I always had sport. It always kept me not doing this all the time, plus schooling and all that. Man, I never drank two days in a row until I joined the military. Uh, I never got exposed to drugs until I joined the military, um, and that's that's okay. It's just just the environment was back then, but it really it really kicked off. Probably after, a little bit before maybe my first trip when we had some downtime, but it wasn't until I really come back, probably from my first trip where that's where um, in, in the leave period where we could drink just consecutively, like we've got six weeks off, like that's hitting it three, four days a week, but still training, still exercising, still going to the gym, still doing all this. But, yeah, it was really a little bit before my first trip, but really hard after my first trip. That's when it started. Yeah. Yeah. So let's uh, obviously let's finish up on the reinforcement cycle. You finish reinforcement cycle, get your beret, <laughs> your qualified commando, mate. How is how's that feeling for you? It's amazing. Like it's what 
I signed up for. Like I joined to get the beret to be a commando to go to to war as a as an SF operator to get that to get um, to finally do all that and know that a lot of guys have lost a lot in the way. It was a great feeling. Like you feel like a bit of a rock star, uh, and that's the persona I had. I carried for quite a while. We were elite. Um, we're at the top of our game, and we're young. So, yeah, it was it was a, it was a great feeling. So you get your first deployment. This is a month in. Mm-hmm. You're on the plane heading to Afghanistan for your first trip as a commando. Is this uh, was this Alpha Company, Bravo Company? So my first trip was Charlie. So Charlie yeah, that yep. just yeah yeah yeah. So just they would come off. So they're really experienced guys. They just come off team. Yep. They just come off yeah for those roles. So all our guys were really experienced. We went into their teams, um, and it was uh yeah really exciting. Getting on that plane, going over. This is what we signed up for. I remember getting off getting off the plane, and I remember like fifty four degrees. Getting off the the herc, and it's like holy, <laughs> this is gnarly, man. Like a dry heat, not not humid, but I'm just wow. This is this is intense. But a lot of excitement, um, knowing that we're there for a for a really important role, we're a good job, and um, really, yeah, it's a high high performing role. So I, yeah, I was. Really excited, yeah. And at that stage, the two commando side of things, even SASR, was a lot of it was uh, land, um, you know, land mobile based. You know, as in using uh, motorized vehicles, the the bushies. Eventually, it moved into the helo side of the things, mate. Run us through, I guess, the the first time you got outside the wire, and mate, your first stink as well. Yeah, so back then we were still using SRVs, LRPVs. Yep. So. Essentially, um, they just got uh, the Bushmaster, which is the one we went into, had the V-shaped hole, so for IEDs. But we're still kicking around in SRVs, LIPVs. In my tour, it changed. So we, I remember half the platoon, uh, Bushmasters, half um, just like a, a rover, which a roof cut off, <laughs> which yeah. is, is pretty pretty mad to be driving around those. So you drive around and then you've got work to do once you pull up into a harbour and then, then you've got to go to work. Yeah? So then you've got to hump in and do a deliberate action or this this was this was tough there. This was before we had dedicated drivers. So that was, um, yeah, that, that was a, back back when we first went, there was a lot more a lot more work to be done because you had the driving component. Helos didn't come until later. Um, I remember the first time going out the wire, yeah, it was, it, was, it was exciting. It was good. Um, I had some good experiences, had some bad experiences. Uh, that first tour got into quite a few um, skirmishes, sort of ticks. Uh, one of my, one of my first ticks, uh, I was I was shot in the back. Uh, that that was a big reality check. And I remember uh, I brought this up the other day when I was speaking to Mum, and um, I remember speaking to her not long after I got back from this uh, this actual mission and. Telling her like I think I think maybe there's a chance maybe I'll start practicing a bit of religion or some spiritual practice because I got oh, away. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is back when I was twenty two, twenty three. Yeah, I remember telling her like I think yeah, it's probably time for me to start. Um, maybe maybe there's a bit of a higher power because I got away with this. Yeah, um, very lucky. Um, um, this happened like my mate next to me, the scout. Um, when when the the round hit. Like so, so, I was wearing a camelback, yeah. So I stopped wearing camelbacks after this because I lost all my all my water, and then I had no water for the job. 
but um, it hit me in the back and then all the water just rushed down my back. And the, I actually had a drink bottle that popped over and uh, distinctively records that crack. So if you, if you know much about shooting crack thump, mm. when you hear a crack, like it's close or it's you've been hit. Yeah. The thump is, you, it's it's a while away. So I remember hearing that and just like then got the water, warm liquid, the bottle coming over and, um, yeah, the scout coming over, taking all my kit off and then like, holy shit, it was just hit about an inch below my top plate. So I got away with that. I still got the round um, at home. Um, but then we had a job to do, carried on. Um, and then, uh, like, I remember, I remember this night when we harbored up, um, and I remember waking up that night and hearing that crack, yeah, of when I got shot. And I, I distinctively remember thinking, this is, this has scarred me. Like, this has done something psychologically to me where, like I've I've held on to this, and now I've learned a lot about trauma, how it's stored in the body, and like those things, you've got to learn to process them. And um, I can tell you that that never happened. <laughs> so waking up, uh, that's not the first time with RPGs as well. Waking up to that, like that that noise would wake me up quite often for years. And look, you just accepted it. You just cracked on. You went to work. You went back to war. You just drank a bit, went away, and then eventually drinking it brought it up and uh, there was a bit of a whirlwind. But back then uh, I was young. I could I could handle it. And, um, you know, I remember like skirmishes and getting in the ticks. That's – if you want to get an adrenaline rush, if you want to get a kick, that's that's what you go do, yeah, because it's high risk, high reward. Like you're, you're running the gauntlet essentially, yeah. So all those – it was really, really stimulating, really um, – just nerve-wracking, a lot of pressure, not knowing if you're going to come out of it. But then the rush you get was quite a, quite a drilling rush, they're quite high, which is I sort of I replicated that in my drug use and my partying. I was chasing the dragon, doing the same, the same ch- chasing the same feeling. Yeah, fucking hell. Now, this first rotation, this was highly kinetic throughout the whole, whole trip? Yep. So it was all deliberate action, disruption ops. Um, all, all my trips were pretty much... Well, if you were in SOTG, you were you were going out. Uh, it was always targeting, always well back from my trips. Yeah, like we're we're after going after people. We're going to stir up the pot. We're going to help um, the infantry guys out of the FOBs. Um, yeah, we started working with DEA, um, some different uh, organisations. Started doing that. So the counter narcotics that was really. That was high level as well because obviously where there's the opium, where there's the money, there's obviously the enemy and uh, in those like Helmand and these places, Shovely Cops, um, like all those places. I did all the operations all through there. I was there for a lot of those ones with Alpha Company um, when that, that big, um, when RS Scotty's VC and all that were all part of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> mate, we'll definitely touch on that shortly. So yeah. th- let's go yeah. back to this first deployment, mate. Now, yep. anything significant happen? Any you lose any guys during this deployment? No, we um we got away with uh, no 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 casualties. The only rotation uh, didn't have casualties. Yeah, um, we're very lucky. Uh, I was said like I, I touch wood and like um, for the grace of God, I guess if uh, I, I would should have been one. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> luckily, did, didn't didn't cop that round in the back of the head. Um, but yeah, it. Close cause, 
that so many guys had close calls. Like yeah. dudes getting copper yeah. rounds in weapons, in armors, in radios, uh, through their pants. Like is this, we were very lucky. And uh, it was luck. But you've also got your training, your your, your skill set, how you move when you're in gunfire. Like all that stuff is just trained into us. But it's a bit of luck, but a bit of training as well. So that deployment finishes, you get back to Australia and I guess you're on two mindsets. You're on a high and a low at the same time because you said you're still experiencing a bit of somewhat, you know, uh, PTSD from copping that round and, you know, obviously waking up to hearing bloody, you know, RPGs cracking off or 107s coming screaming in type thing. You get back to Australia, mate, um, back into the swing of things, get a bit of time off, the booze drinking starts turning it on and the drugs. What, what's happening, mate? Run us through this first, you know, first time back. Well, so I first get back um, and I go on a holiday with some mates. So at this stage, I was single. Um, we went to South America, um, <laughs> tore it up over there. I lost like 13 kilos in four weeks, five weeks. Whilst on my, um, my trip weight that I put on in muscle and just destroyed myself and um, coming back from South America, um, being in that environment, drinking and, and drugging, um, that come back to Australia, I kept that kept that sort of behaviour going, knowing uh, like at the end of the year, I think it was I was going to deploy again. So that was really how it was, right? Um, drinking was just accepted. We worked hard, we played hard. I just seen it as a bit of a, a right, uh, which is the wrong way to be thinking about it now. Now I'm a bit older, but that's just how I kept with it. Um, I, I thought there's a good, like surviving that first, um, that, that round that shocked me, Surviving that did give me that invincible feeling and um, knowing that, okay, the next trip, maybe I'm not going to be so lucky, so why can't I do this now? Um, so it, it gave me permission to carry on that behaviour. I was a good soldier. Like I turned up to work. I did everything that was required. I just played hard. And there was other guys doing it as well, um, and I, I pushed it to, to a, new, a new level. And um, really I started to develop a persona uh, like an alter ego, I guess. Like I was Mad Dog. I was uh, just doing things to that weren't really in my nature, but were. Uh, like drinking and drugging allowed me to express myself in a way and be someone I wasn't, and somebody I thought people wanted to see. That being a, a commando, definitely, I saw I myself as up here. So when I partied, I had to also be up there and if not elevate it more and it was just a bad cycle to get into and that was really the start of my cycle which went on for a long time a very long time now when we talk drugs what are we talking party drugs ecstasy, yeah cocaine cocaine, cocaine ecstasy speed um, pretty much speed. anything like it yeah it all started with uh alcohol um yep. and then it yep. just, we went into drugs and then back to alcohol and then it, just playing a, a pharmacist, a chemist here, just up and down, up and down, trying to modulate everything. Mm. And then what started one day, then went two, then three, four, went for a week, and then then I turned off, go to work, get fit, get healthy, eat well, train, and then maybe for the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then this would go on for weeks, um, and then you'd eventually go and deploy again, and then yeah, then you then you clean for that whole, pretty much the whole rotation. You drink a few times, but it's mainly fitness, health, work, work hard, work hard, really hard. 
Yeah, and you're cashed up as well. You know, let's 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 not forget that two commando six figure diggers. Um, yep. And yep. then obviously so, deploy- yeah. deployment money as well. You know, that's that's another big bonus. So you cashed up, and so the ease of getting drugs is easy. The ease of getting booze is easy. Good. Traveling around, you know, South America, far out. There's plenty of yeah, drugs man, and alcohol there. As, yeah, as, as a 22 year old on six figures, like that's what we're on. That that was just our salary, yeah. And um, exactly. then we go to a trip tax free. Uh, it's really good money. So, like, I didn't buy the HSV or club sport or anything like this. My invested a little bit, and then I I spent mine on the premise that there's a good chance I'm not going to come back next trip. So that was my whole idea of thinking. Madness. <laughs> not not the best. Uh, I should have houses. I should have all this stuff. But that's just how I lived back then. <laughs> yeah, mate. That's how I think a lot of us lived. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I yeah, bought yeah. HSV. <laughs> Mate, how long before you <laughs> how long before you deployed onto a uh, onto your second deployment? It wasn't long. So what happened was um, I was Charlie Company. I got back from South America. Um, I got Charlie Company for a little bit, and what actually happened is Alpha Company were going to go over. Um, they had an injury, and then they had a, a death in training. So uh, down at Coltana. Coltana, um, yeah. That's. Yeah, so unfortunately, um, um, soldier got killed in training, commando. So they had the backfill. And what they did is they come to us in Charlie Company, us new guys who were off the Rio, did their first trip and said, there's um, there's a trip for who wants to come on board. And so I put my hand up and said, yep, well, I'll, I'll go again on the premise that I can come back to Charlie Company. So there was a handshake with my CSM um, and he uh, yep, so I got my orders. They got my transfer company. Went to Alpha Company um, in around March, I think it was. And then, literally, I didn't know any of the guys. I met all the guys at the airport on our flight, and I went back to war. So in the first year, I was in two commando. I did like two hundred and ninety days in war at two, two rotations. Yeah. So it was quite quite an experience and quite a like welcoming to the unit. So I did. I um was I got experience really fast. Yeah, when was the second trip? What year was this? 2010. 2010. Mate. And this is Alpha Company. Yeah. Alpha Company, yep. Yeah. yeah, gotcha mate. So again mate, back into Afghanistan, you're clean again. How like how's your body going though? Like are you have you uh got the addiction at that stage? Are you com- I knew something coming on I knew downs? something was wrong. Yeah, yeah, I knew something was wrong because I would have anxiety for days. I would shake, and if I drank, it went away. And I was always like, "Yeah, this is this is starting to get out of hand." But I knew after a week or two weeks, I'm good. But and so a rotation is like it's a four, a three, four, maybe five month uh, time frame where I could not put shit in my body. So it was a bit of a like, <laughs> like I can get yeah, get my shit back together. And that's essentially what happened. And I'd get really strong. I'd get super fit. My head would come straight after about a week or two weeks, my clarity. I could actually think again and then I'd be back into it, back into working hard, back into going out the wire, back into operating. But now I know, even though like I put down the drugs, when you go into those environments, your brain is still very much damaged. It's getting damaged. So those those near death experiences, those fighting for your life scenarios, that's uh, quite stressful on the brain. It's very stressful. 
So there's no there's no recovery for the brain. <laughs> so you think you're recovering, but it's getting pumped again. And um, you know, the brain it takes it's not till it's fully formed and matured, it's like 25, 26, maybe maybe it's a few about 24. But my brain was under the effects of drugs, and then I'd go back into a highly stressful environment, thinking it was downtime, but it wasn't physically for my my muscles and that. Yeah, but not for my brain. Uh, it wasn't until I was later on I found out that. My brain just never recovered for that whole minute, um, that service time, and then contracting time. I did the same thing. I was just, my brain was fried. Yeah, from all, all that evils. Yeah, far out, mate. This is fucking wild. So you're back in Afghanistan. You're straight back into the thick of it. It's highly kinetic again, as you said. This rotation was, um, you know, again highly kinetic. Shawali Cot was happening. Uh, three commandos were killed in a helicopter crash as well. Was, is that is this your period? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we're. Um. I was. Uh, Oscar. So Oscar platoon, and we're doing. So we'd have helos for one job. The other platoon would have helos, and we're going out, um, just doing the same operations, uh, targeting, I believe. And um, yeah, this I remember this day uh, we were stood up on um. um Quick reaction, and um, yeah, we had to go out, and we were getting out there, and I'm sort of fully understanding what, what happened, and that the helos crashed, and we lost lost the boys, um, which was a real. I've said reality check before, but this was like home. Like we knew these guys; these were guys like I'd been next to um, mates, I guess you could say. Yeah, so that was a real somber time for the unit. Yeah, it was it was tough. It was tough knowing that, like we're staying there, and we're still going back out on operations, still yeah, still conducting what the government wants us to do. So that was that was my first experience with sort of death um, at like war. Yeah, and just on that Shawali cot, you know, again, I've spoken to a couple of the other boys, and they said that first twenty four hours was fucking game time. Like it was so, on. yeah. So, yeah. So, that actual job, um, yeah, like I don't know how much details we can go into, but like we were out there in the field for a week, yeah, doing an air soap. Um, when the SAS come in, like we were sort of late, I guess you could say. So, we were <laughs> stirring up stuff and yeah, we were stirring up shit. And then they come in and landed on the guys who were mustering up the company to us. So, um, but that was a good experience uh, living out of the packs and for a week up in the mountains. Like, tough times. I refer to one of these as tough times because we ran out of water and we couldn't get water res up because of the, the threat to helos. We couldn't get Apaches on to give the res- helicopter resupply uh, protection. So remember, like that was tough, rationing water in the middle of summer. Um, that, was, that was hard. But all, all those operations, um, they taught me something um, – Good experience and bad experience. Yeah, so look back, it's all good to be. I'm proud to be part of that. Yeah. I know there's a lot of shit which has happened since, and there's a lot of stuff in the media and guys, you know, don't, I won't go into it too much, but around where I was, I'm uh, very proud of sort of my elbows and uh, how we conducted business. Yeah, mate, exact reason why I get people like yourself on these shows to, you know, give the, the true side of things rather than what we hear through those journos that spew a lot of rubbish. Now, mate, in regard to your body, your mind, you know, 
are you wanting to get back on the drugs and booze? Are you feeling like, is your body like, fuck, I can't wait to get back to Australia so I can just turn it on again? Yeah, yeah. that's what I planned. I knew exactly what I was doing. Oh, did you? So you like, fucking yeah, 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 like it. Yeah, yeah, like I organised with people as soon as I get off the plane. Like, says, we're on. We're back to, back to living my, the, the lifestyle. Back to play. Um, I worked hard, so why not? I can't play hard. And um, essentially, uh, I get back. I have my downtime. But as well, like, I go back to Charlie Company to prepare again. So this is all I give, my, I give myself permission to do all this stuff. I've got four or six weeks off. Um, so I don't sleep a lot in that time. Uh, I lose, I lose ten kilos again. Um, and but this is again all on the premise. I know I'm going back to war, so I did. So, so I've uh, written a permission note for myself. Has anyone picked up on this? Guys did, yeah, guys did. Uh, look, I, I wasn't the only one. Oh, this, I know that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think was, what a lot of yeah, a lot yeah. of people need to understand it was it was a cultural thing in the military, and it wasn't just SF, mate. I know guys that were doing pingers, doing cocaine in three hour hour. Like it was, a re- it, mate. I smoked plenty of weed in two uh, three hour hour. You know, like it was what, what we did. You know, like it was <laughs> yeah, just yeah, part of the game. Yeah, yeah man. That's it's just it. Like it's not just military. It's it's all. Cops do this, like it's, it's all organisations that do this, yeah. But in the military, it's just prominent because I think it's we're all young guys. We have some money. We're all in an environment where testosterone. We're going to war. Of course, we're going to have downtime. It's I think it's really it's Australian culture. To be honest, now, mate, it's, it is. Oh, hundred percent, yeah, yeah. mate, hundred percent is Australian. It's not just yeah, it's, it's civvies and mate. I run a security company, mate, so we see it. We see it. You know, we see it every every weekend. And it's not, you know, probably makes it a little bit harder when you got these NRL players getting on the drugs every weekend too, and setting an example that you know no one really cares about anymore. It's just culture, which which is shit because fuck, it's it's unhealthy and it can it kills a lot of people. Which um, you know, that's right, that's right. Like uh, now, like I've I've seen the real dark side of addiction and that's the avenue I went later on in life. But I, I it was dangerous for me to do it, but I wasn't dangerous. The, the danger I really experienced is later on when the suicide thoughts, self-harm, and we'll go into that. But yeah, that's – Yeah. Yeah. And um, the, the guys were doing it and I was doing it with guys um, that they – I knew my off switch was almost burnt out. Uh, if I didn't have to go back – if I knew I wasn't going back to war, it would it would have been very difficult for me to stop. If I didn't have those responsibilities and purpose – uh, which I lost later on in life, and that's where my off switch completely went. But I still have that. I'm still professional enough to be able to go to work when needed, and know I had to prepare for for work and, and be part of a team again, which is a big part. A big one is being part of guys having you know five oppos in my team, um, and having yeah commitment to them and um, being part of uh, contributing essentially. Yeah, yeah, and I guess there's probably a few listeners out there going, where are the drug tests? Why, why aren't they drug testing? They were drug testing. They were generally like a 10 percenter, and, you know, if you stayed under the radar and stayed off the radar type thing, you wouldn't, you know, that 10 percent probably wouldn't come your way. It's generally those guys that that stabbed for that 10 percent that they knew that were taking the piss, you know, on the piss or on the drugs, and which happened a fair bit. Yeah, man, um, that's like the, we, need, we need 10 volunteers. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. you haven't get a haircut, go get go get tested. Um, my when I look back, they didn't really want to get guys because why would you want to catch you guys when you you've got to fill your quota for guys going to walk? Like that, yeah, we've got to fill. We don't have the operators there. Some some um, companies were going over shorter guys because we just didn't have them and they couldn't backfield. So now I my understanding it's changed a lot. Everyone everyone's tested this. It's hard yeah. to dodge. But uh, and I think it's good and it's also bad um, in a way because look, anyone who does what we did, they're not. Mr. Nice guys, they're not like the the guy in class putting the hand up at school who was polite and like these guys are rough guys and you're asking them to do a rough thing. So they've got to have downtime. They're going to have outlets where they let the hair down. Uh, I don't I don't condone drug use and like heavy alcohol use, but you got to understand these like us. There's to for us to do what we do, we can't just be. Just listen, nice guy. Or we, yeah, asking guys to do dangerous, scary things and to kill to kill people essentially and hunt hunt people and do you know what's required of us. It needs to be a bit of a dark side to us. Um, I sort of see that's how it come, can come out. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, but again, for the listeners, not everyone was like this. You know, there was there were guys that were there were got you know there were some absolute fucking hitters yeah there was ab- some absolute fucking hitters getting some absolute massive awards and then they were nerds on the side you know they were literally geeks you know what i mean so not everyone was you know we may talk about drugs in the in the military but not everyone was you know banging it every banging it in every weekend the majority wasn't yeah exactly there was a, a minor- minority and the yeah yeah that's right just same in any social culture now mate so you back um so you're on that deployment. You get back, as you said, you were already planning exactly what you're going to do on this time off. We'll just get straight back on the drugs, get straight back on the booze every week at, you know, partying in, in, in Sydney. Again, another place, location, Sydney. There's fucking anywhere you can go in Sydney. It's Coogee Bay, Cronulla, Kings Cross. Yeah, man, I, I, it's I, just yeah, everywhere. I lived in Coogee. So uh, Coogee was my stomping grounds. Coogee Bay um, Hotel. Kings, Kings Cross every weekend hanging out with – People we shouldn't be hanging out with because we're rock stars, remember? So um, it was just uh, just a cycle. And just in those environments, it is what it is. You're a product of your environment. Exactly. So when's your third trip come up? What's the uh, months in between that? So third trip is Charlie Company Rotation 15, 2011. So now I'd had um, – I got back like June or July 2010, so I'm back – to the start of the fighting tour the following year. So it's about nine months off, I think. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. 10, 10 months. And at yep, this stage, so mate, there's right. a lot of lot of Australian deaths as well at this stage, Australian soldiers. Yep, yep. so we had um, a helicopter crash. Um, yeah, some guys were, yeah, yeah. It was, it was start, uh, numbers were starting to um, to stack up a little bit. Uh, it was becoming a more real threat, like the IEDs obviously were a big issue. Um, and doing the... The DA operations were quite quite high risk as well. Which um, on this following rotation is where we lost three guys as well. Um, which this was this was more of a deep impact for me because uh, these guys like I've worked with for years. Um, yeah, so there was a really really sad, really sad, um, sad tour. Yeah, so let's talk about that rotation. 
again, mate, these rotations are about four months long. Uh, again, what were you doing on this? This is more direct action. Yeah, so uh, a lot will – I think maybe we did a few DAs. So all those sort of um, – I don't know if it's politically correct anymore. Maybe delete this out, but the kill capture um, had sort of – wasn't happening a lot. Um, I think SAS might have been doing a few of them, but ours were purely disruption. So we're going in to stir up the pot, and it was always into areas where we knew fighters were to land and just stir up shit and then yeah. have uh, have QRF get ready to come and pounce on things. So, um, yeah, like they're going down to Helmand, um, join these types of operations where it's, it, it's, it's a different world sort of down there to Uruzgum. Uh, these are like a skilled fighters um, with snipers and stuff like this. It, yeah, it was uh, a really heavy um, uh, heavy rotation where we're doing a lot of operations, vehicle operations as well as helo. Yeah, when you talk disruption, you know, you talk about kill capture. Yeah, I don't give a fuck about political correctness. Um, <laughs> you know, disruption, when you say disruption, it's more there was no capture. It was fucking go in, stir up the hornet's nest and kill as many fucking bad guys as you could. That was that go was in, the goal. Wait, yeah, go in, uh, wait to... Um, wait to see what intelligence starts go. People start talking, like a way yep. to wait to start. People start talking. This is intercepted. We find out where people are. We go and push into areas. We get shot at. Okay, now let's go. Let's see what happens here. Just we'll keep moving and maneuvering to see what happens. And then um, we've got intelligence. So this is listening, finding out what's what's going on here. Who's talking to who? Who calls this person? And um, you're really going into where you know fighters are to cause shit because you cause shit, there's a flow-on effect and uh, you get valuable intelligence out of this. But it's high risk. <laughs> exactly, mate. Now, in regard to your mind and your body again, are you – the addiction's fully set in this time. Uh, you're feeling this. Are you, are you already in your mind? Because, again, I've done this podcast with Kyle Schmidt and he said it like, yeah, like you did before, you know, halfway through his tour, he'd start planning exactly or sending emails to his drug dealer so they can have it literally. By the time he gets off a plane, there's a bag in his pocket and he's already straight on it. Were you, was your body already feeling that? Yep. So now, like, and I work in addiction uh, when I help people through the process that I had to go through. That's a, like a coping mechanism is you start planning and you're like, when I get home, I know I'm going to use. So, even now when you get into recovery, um, you will start justifying things. You're like, look, I won't pick up today, but I know tomorrow I'm going to pick up so you can relax now. But that's the craving there. Yeah? So you want you want to get on, you want to use. So what you, your brain justifies it, says, okay, well, as soon as we get back, we're going to use. So now I can actually uh, relax a little bit. And it's all about the um, excitement. So like in addiction, like when you eventually once you become an addict, when you take a drug, that's not the highest you'll be. The highest you'll be is where you make the call or organizing your drugs to the dealer. Yeah? So when you make that call and you, you know you're getting on, there's a big high. Yeah. But when you actually take the drug, there's there's no high. It's the opposite you're effect. Right. When you start when you start taking drugs, your brain lights up when you take it, not when you're thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. When you become an addict, your brain lights up when you think about it, not when you take it. So this is the the conundrum here. And so you can relax knowing that I'm going to get on. So that's essentially what I what I did and what I, I know I'm going to get on. So, okay, let's just keep working on the body. 
the physique, the ego. Let's keep working on that. But I'm still working out. I'm still you know, on operations, but knowing when I get home, I'm going to be able to go back to playing hard. And again, like as I keep saying, I, it's already written myself the permission note to do this. Where did, you know, so let's let's finish that deployment. You get back to Australia, mate. You're straight back on the gas, uh, back to work as well, obviously. You said, you you know, you started having these, you know, I guess your mental state as well started to decline where it comes, you know, more darker thoughts, suicide, et cetera. Where, where does that come into play? Is this already in play or is it just coming into play now? It, so after this rotation uh, losing, we lost our three boys in that trip. Coming back, um, I had I had a partner on and off since I was 16 to like 26. So I was around 26 now, a uh, long-term girlfriend. Um, she pleaded for me to get help. And I did it. And um, we broke up. Um, if they were on and off for a little bit, but we broke up. And that's that's really where I was like, mm, maybe I'm getting in some territory now where I do need help, but I was too proud to actually get it. So we broke up. Um, I moved out on my own and things got pretty crazy. Uh, but I was still holding on and managing it. Um, I went on to CT now, so I'm doing a year at um, doing a counterterrorism. Uh, we did a lot of exercises, but in that time as well, and this is what saved me. I got given another trip, <laughs> so I got given another tour to go back and uh, be in a, in a four-man PSC team looking after a, a highest-ranking general in, uh, in Afghanistan. So I went straight back, uh, probably four or five months later. Um, and then back in working in Kabul with a, you know some senior guys, and it was back. To, <laughs> this cycle just repeated four years in a row. So that's what saved me then. When I got back from this PSD, uh, and I got sent, still got home, um, and pretty much what they did is they sent me to do sub two, and because I was going to get made up to a lance jack, I've done some time now, like I was quite experienced. They sent me on JLC. And then they sent me, oh, sorry, sent me a sub two. Then they sent me straight to JLC. And every weekend I'm still doing the same shit. And JLC was my, um, that's where I got, I, I got, I found a, a piss test, a drug test. Uh, yeah, so I was targeted a bit. Um, and yeah, the last week before March out, got tested, failed. Um, and this is where I lost it. This is where. The wheels were already coming off, don't get me wrong, but this is where it's like, okay, there's a good chance I'm going to lose my, my job here. I fought it for a long time. So I lost my partner, did everything the military wanted me to do, did all those rotations, did these subject courses to become an advanced jack. And then at the end of it, right at the end, I uh, found a drug test, and then I get removed from my – go back to the unit because I was outside of SF command. I was in um, training command. I go back to my unit and I get moved out of my platoon. I get put in the sergeant's mess and I was there for five months, like working, cleaning, sweeping up leaves, uh, posing down the car park, shit like this, uh, which sucked. I understand it now and I accept responsibility. It is what it is. But really in that time, just a bit lost, still doing what I was doing because fuck it. Like, like I spent my whole twenties at, at war at this stage. Um, did everything the military asked me, and now I'm trying to clean of pots and sort of shit like this. So 
eventually that got to the end um, and I got discharged. Um, and then I would have completely gone off the rails then, except I went contracting. <laughs> yeah. So just, I got just, saved. I got saved. Just, just quickly, mate, before you touch on that side of the things, mate, back to the moments where obviously you do your piss test, it's it's been flagged, you've been you've been busted, you do another one, you get busted again type thing. Are you still just gassing it throughout that whole five, four, five-month period while you're working in that admin role? Uh, I had downtimes when I knew I was going to have to speak with my command. So, like, uh, I, I had to write a, 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 what's called, um, a letter to give the reasons of what, what's happened. Yeah. Yep. So I, I told them what happened. Uh, I got a heap of um, references of people. And you got to remember, like, I, I was a good soldier, yeah? Like, I've been nominated That's for a medal, it, yeah. which I got, I got later on. Like, I wasn't just a, someone who wanted to get rid of me. Like, guys, I was, I was liked. Uh, I was a good operator. Put at my job, so people were vouching for me. Not everyone, which um, a little bit disgruntled there after I protected them, and they, sh- you know, guys who probably should, a guy in particular should have lost their job, and he wouldn't even write me one. Uh, which I protected him, but that's a different story. But most of the guys in the unit, good. Uh, they they tried to help me, um, but yeah, in those when I would know I wasn't having to deal with um, my hierarchy. Yeah, I was. I had a case of the the fuckets where it's like, look, if I go, I go. Like, I, what what else do they want from me? Like, I, I did I did everything they asked, and um, it, yeah, I was majority of the time. Yeah, yeah, shit, mate. Just quickly, mate. You just mentioned something there. You, you know, you, you got awarded, you know, commendation for something, mate. Runners, what what is this? Yeah, let, let's let's highlight this as well. You know, this is this is this is the professional side of John Wynn at that stage. If you know what I mean. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So rotation 15, um, we were in May, June. We're in Sabul. So we're on the Pakistani border. We land doing an operation. Um, and we're, um, we're maneuvering to a HLZ, I believe, and we're doing um, a river crossing. And um, so I was, for all my trips, uh, I carried the machine gun. I was a bigger guy, so I had the, the Mark 48. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, it's a good good bit of kit to have in a gunfight. Mm-hmm. So uh, I always carried it. So I moved across the river, for, uh, one of the first ones, to cover the team. And we had an attachment of um, PHQ, so um, some, some guys with us. Um, we get hit. We get ambushed. And um, I moved up onto a bank uh, and start returning fire. I, re- I received fire myself. Um uh, at this point where my team commander and um, they thought I'd been shot because of the, the, the rounds coming in and, um, yeah, like we, we got into a, a bit of a skirmish there. We had operators moving across the river. Some of them <laughs> got swept down because uh, the gunfire, uh, they ended up coming across. We secured the position, so we won the initiative. Uh, we secured that and then we, we got out of there. But um, really nothing nothing too special just received fire and I didn't give up my position and allowed my um, team to move across the river and uh, get across there safely. And, you know, like, this is just accommodation, so the, this, it's nothing, nothing major here, but, you know, those, those awards, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Um, it. It's sort of, I didn't have the award at this time because my, my paperwork disappeared when uh, we got back to Oz, so I didn't get my award till like, two years after 
I discharge here. So maybe that commendation might have helped while I was going through my uh, my process of getting um, you know discharged from the military. I don't I don't think so, honestly. But I'm very proud of that. And like a lot of guys did uh, really heroic things in the military, yeah. And I think those are the things which should be um, you know highlighted. And a lot not a lot of this negative press, which I understand it. But uh, so guys did some really special and heroic, crazy things. Some of that with boys, yeah, yeah crazy. Oh things. yeah, mate. There's there's thousands <laughs> of stories, especially from two command SSR, even the regular infantry, mate. There's yeah, absolutely yeah. wild stories out there. But again, mate, the media. Anyway, mate. So we're in the, we're in that four to five month period of you just. Uh, showing cause to stay in the army where, where there's some parts of two commando as in the rank structure, you know, CSMs above, were they trying to retain you and fight your case with you or they just wanted to fuck you off? No. So they didn't want to touch me. Um, and already knew it. Like after I went contracting and I uh, come back and Anzac day after they're like coming up to me and they're apologizing and they're, they're probably listening to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure they probably would not. Like they're apologising, son. We should have done more. Um, soon as someone got removed, and there's probably a likely that there's going to be a bit of shit attached to them. Guys will do this. Yeah, my mates, no. Like my team commanders, um, some sergeants, yeah, some sergeants, no. But when you get to that hierarchy, nah, they don't. They don't want to touch it because they're putting their reputation there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like they come up and apologise and said that we should have done more. Yeah, you should have, but it's not going to change anything. Like there's no hard thought. There is still a little bit of ill feelings towards that, but it is what it is. I had to, I had to let go of that type of stuff. You know, like I grew up with treat people how you want to be treated and I exactly. did a lot of bad. I, I didn't do well at that in addiction when I was on the piss and on drugs and I did really nasty things, which I'm not happy about. But in a work environment, I think that, you know, I've looked after people and, you know, the stuff which happened, which we never talked about, and um, that was to protect people. And then when it happened for them to help me and they didn't do it, it left a really sour taste in my mouth. And these people know who they are. Um, But, again, acceptance is in the past. I'm a different person now. All those experiences shaped me and um, we've – Years since then, and um, I just moved on. As you spoke about, what, what was the reason why it took so fucking long? What, why was it taking four to six months for you to, for them to come up with it with an answer and let you stew in on life? And were you going into obviously the the piss tank at this stage or rehab? No, so nothing. Uh, the so reason the, the army didn't even do that for you. Nah, nah, nah. So when it actually when this all happened, and I said, look. Um, and I, I had a few mates who said, look, you need to bring up some of this stuff which happened in your past and um, in, in your military career. And I ended up speaking with um, a psychologist about this and it's like I told him, I said, look, this, this has happened. And he's like, yeah, okay. And, and like, I told him, told him that shit would happen and nothing nothing came out of this. Nothing was – he passed on to uh, the CEO and um, – when I spoke to the CEO, he's like, yeah, I was told about this. Um, but then no, still nothing. Like, no. Just stopped. <laughs> just, just, just nothing happened from that, right? It's like no one really wanted to touch it. There was a little bit bizarre. Um, and then I remember getting word from some of my mates. They're like, 
word is that um, you're throwing grenades on the way out burning people. And I'm like, what, what the fuck? And I remember like that again, that's like, like I've protected, I've protected this unit yeah, with, you know, this information and this, but this wasn't the majority. This was a minority of people. Um, and, but yeah, no, no, no one stepped in. Um, I, did, I didn't end up doing my first rehab until like 2017, 16, I think it was after the military. But don't get me wrong, like now with the military, they like I had to go through DVA, like and now of course. It, it's all good. It's all good now. Like the military have real DVA in particular, they've really stepped up, and um, I know they get a bad rap, but they really helped me out when I needed it. Um, my rehabs, my all my injuries, um, yeah. So they they did they did well by me, and um, but the, that military side, yeah. And I think I was I was this real start with a lot of guys who this happened to. So a lot of guys started the failed testing, and I think now they had to look at it and say, "Hold on, like we're asking these guys to go back to war, do all this shit, and then they're, they're starting to fail this test, and we're losing. Like we're, we're the money they invest in us, it's millions of dollars to get us to where we are, right? So exactly. they don't really want to, they don't want to lose us. We're an asset, so it is that they get us and we fail the test, and they piss us off. Um, it's not ideal. Um, so I think they needed to look at what. Why are these guys doing these behaviours? I think it's changed a little bit now. And I've spoken with some senior guys, and um, you know, I was willing to come back and like help talk about my story to younger guys and getting into the unit to like, so they didn't take uh, my path. And I think it's you know they're not, they're not going back to back trips now and not seeing their family and not making ridiculous mates. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, yeah. Now, just just quickly want to bring up something, mate. Obviously, throughout mainstream media, mate, there was a time uh, there was an operator that was uh, he actually overdosed uh, over in Afghanistan, um, which was on mainstream media. So there was these issues happening throughout that time. Yeah, I, I was there for that. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, that was a really crazy time. Um, <laughs> it was interesting. Yeah, um, and. Uh, I think it highlighted what like what they're asking us to do. Like, you know, exactly. I'm sure if you go back, I'm sure if you go back to World War One, Gallipoli, like the World War Two, like these these places, like guys were letting their hair down, and it was a coping mechanism, right? The military like, was, tested the drugs on on soldiers at one stage to see how they would react. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's you're asking guys to do really hard things. They're gonna have these, yeah, coping mechanisms and outlets, yeah. Um, but that 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 time was uh, pretty surreal. And uh, then then they come in and tested every single one of us to find out, and um, no one no one got done. Yeah. So, uh, but that I think that highlighted really like the the stresses of what we're under and guys using different coping mechanisms. And that's all I can really say about that. Yeah. But, no. Exactly. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that for a long time, to be honest. And, yeah, yeah, mate, I up. haven't either was, until until this episode. And you know, it's this guy. <laughs> I know him because he was he was extra yeah, yeah. hour as well. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mates, yeah. So you're discharged. However, straight into contracting, which was probably another fucking bad thing to do because, as we know, contracting. Uh, you know, you went to Kabul. Is that right? Yep. Back to Afghanistan. So I, yeah, I first started with. Um, uh, working for State Department, I had a, a contract with ACE. So, um, so I was up in um, Mazar-e-Sharif, up, yep. up near the top of the, uh, top of the Afghanistan, and 
I did that for a little bit um, uh, with Global. It was actually the company. And um, did that for a bit, Not nothing really exciting. Um, did it for like three, four months and then got a, a gig in Kabul with um, with Embassy there. And that, that was a like working two months on one month off. At least when I was contra- uh, in the military, I had three to four months, five months maybe uh, working and then, you know, for quite a few months off where that was two months on one off. So that enabled me, I did that for a few years, uh, enabled me to really fine-tune my <laughs> work hard, go to somewhere in the world and party hard and then come back and how do I get back into some type of shape to be work again. And uh, I got it pricked down to a pretty fine art where I could do it with like three, four days. Um, but then essentially that drifted into while I was at work. And that was yeah. really much downfall. Down yeah, um, yeah, exactly, mate. And obviously, being a contractor, a lot more fucking money. The you know your your money was fucking a lot more than what uh, you're getting in uh, the military. And as we know, on the PSD side of things, a lot looser. As in, there's a lot less restrictions. You know, as long as you get up and do your job, get do your re- registered jobs, you can come back and relax, etc. And as we know, in Kabul, mate, it was kind of like a free fall. Like there was. The ability to get whatever you wanted. If you wanted to get a javelin, if you wanted to get heroin, if you wanted to get whatever the fuck you wanted, you could get in Afghanistan, especially in Kabul. Yeah, it was literally like that. And like, we'll we'll go out. Like, we're, we're going to clubs. Like, this is <laughs> this is supposed to be war there, and we're going out and just in you know small teams. Um, you'd be getting all the gas. You'd go back to work. You got your job the next day. Um, it, it was a pretty crazy time, and when I first started, I was I was still junior in that, and it wasn't until later on where we just started letting the hair down more, and um, it was still not downfall. But yeah, it, it was there was no limits. <laughs> like as long as you could turn up and do your job, and even then, sometimes like um, guys were they made out of function, and then guys would step in, cover them, and then you just get a bit of talking to, and then you back at it in a couple of days. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, exactly, mate. And I guess the difference is is that you're just a civilian now. You know, as a contractor, you are just a civilian, not to mention the Australian Embassy does not give a fuck about you as well uh, compared to what they did, you know, as you were in the Army. You know, you get somewhat care. You're a number. The government does get yeah, exactly. You're, you're, not, you're not even a number as a contractor. You know, it's uh, it's one of those things. Um, so during the job, as you said, you guys were just turning it on, or you know, specifically yourself. How was your mind? As you said, you you had your breakup. Now this is when those all those thoughts and self harm, etc., come into your mind and the mental decline. Where, you know, where are you going here? Like, are you thinking? Have you got a grasp of the concept, or this is the addiction's taken over now? That's it. Yeah, like at that that, that stage, um, like. Working for two months and then month off, I was just tearing on. Like there wasn't really a day off. Um, where by the time I left contracting and just I had no purpose, no nothing really. This is where my whole life just went to shams. And um, I did my first rehab. Um, start this whole process started, and really I now say losing uh, self identity and losing. Like you got to remember, I was a commando from when I was 22, and I was a contractor, and now I'm getting towards 30, and now like I'm just a, a bit of nobody, right? Um, I'm still holding on to like bodyguarding gigs. I'm doing security still, uh, but it's nothing, nothing 
giving me that that real sense of purpose. And then the drinking and drugging just became my life. And that's this is where entered rehab, get, go in a cycle. I'd do you know four to six weeks in a rehab, get clean, start training again. I'd come out, I'd stay clean for four to maybe eight weeks. The cycle would start again. Yeah. So, and what was happening? I'd go in the rehab, I come out, I'd be good. I did wheels would fall off. I'd destroy myself. Each time this happens, I get worse and worse and worse. I start rolling cars. Uh, I start um, self-harming, uh, doing all this shit uh, when, I'm, when I'm drinking and using really brings up the emotion for me. So when it was taking away emotion, now it's bringing it up. So, And by the time where there was intervention starting and I was getting sections at hospitals, um, my, I was working with a, a doctor up in, um, in Newcastle, I don't know if you know Saker, Dr. Saker? Yeah, yeah, yes, a, uh, psychiatrist. Yeah, so I started working with him and he's like explained to me, he goes, can't you see this? <laughs> he's like, since you were 22, you did your first tour, you work hard and then you play hard. You work hard, you play hard. You did this for like four years and contracting two months on, one off. Same goes, thing. Now you're doing this with fucking rehabs. Like you get good, you get your head, it's a, a pattern. He goes, You've been doing this for so many years. He goes, your poor brain has never recovered. You need to stop everything and just be return homeostasis, work through your shit, stop drinking, stop drugging, um, eat well, train well for a long period of time. And this is where the decompression, like you come back from a trip and they say decompress for, you know, for a few weeks. I think I think now, like they've identified, you need, you do like a, a six-month tour, you need two years off. Like something like this, you need time where you're not stimulating those um, those responses in your brain. So after sort of him explaining that to me, it made sense, but it never it never stopped me. It wasn't until I got clean um, three years ago where it's oh the penny dropped. I'm like ah, I see, I see now. But when you're in addiction, nothing's going to stop you. And it's it, at that point, addiction is survival. So mm. drinking and drugging is survival. So doing nasty, shitty things, hurting people, losing all your values, your morals, like sitting there and cut my wrist and then like I'd, 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 send, a, I'd send someone a photo, right, and like what the fuck am I doing? Like this is I'm hurt, like deliberately trying to hurt people and it's just madness and it's not who I was. It's just what I had become um, and the way I can see it now is, you know, if I don't if I don't pick up now and start using, I'm not going to be that person who I was. So as long as I stay clean now, like I'm John. Back then I wasn't really John. I was just lost. And it, was, it was all cry for helps, really screaming for help, and but not accepting it. Fifteen plus, you know, fifteen ish rehabs on that first one though. Who identifies this? Is it yourself? Are you like I need help? Do you go find help, or was someone, did someone go fuck? Can't like you need fucking help. Yeah. So my yeah yeah my uh, ex um, my ex girlfriend I had for about ten years so I'm really still I grew up with her uh, my um, her parents I'm really close with still that helped me a lot through my my journeys and the family in general I'm really close with the walls up in up in Camden Haven and she was still friends at the stage um, and uh, she stepped in and said and she got my mates around to her house and like John needs to stop this or he's he's going to end up dead. So there's intervention and then it would have been maybe a week or two after that 
um, she organized everything for me to do my first rehab in Bronte. And then uh, that only lasted two weeks. Uh, I left and went went back to South America. But that that really started the process for me. It's like rehab's there's an option. Like I actually, yeah, okay, this and this this is a good thing for for people if you're listening, like, you know, you might and you're gonna fail in recovery. It's like no one gets it first go. Like relapsing is part of the process. But if you can get to a rehab, if you can get into a program and start it, at least the pennies, uh, the the, the program has been implanted that it's an option for you to get better, and like there is that avenue. There's, there's no, there's not a lot of stigma associated with it anymore. Back then, there was like, oh, John's going to rehab. Whoa, it was a big thing. Not, not really anymore. Uh, from, from what I, you know, my perception, but that started it, um, and then it really made it easy for me to just keep going back into rehab. And it was only the only way I'd end up in rehab is if. I'd end up being sectioned by the like a hospital or police. Uh, I'd always towards the end, I always end up in ICU um, to come out of to withdrawal because of how bad it is. Um, and essentially, it was a, uh, an intervention of some type of um, like a first responder or well, as, yeah, like it had what the power was taken away. Like I had to go to rehab, or yeah, there, there was no option. So that's the point I got to. What, what are you using at this stage? Are we just are we still with the the regular stuff, or are we talking this is next level stuff? So mainly it was mainly alcohol, cocaine uh, at yep. that stage, and then I went to then I moved into meth, so ice meth. That's uh, yeah, smoking. so that uh, I'd smoke it in a um, uh, session, and yep. um, like it's it was cocaine is is harsh, and um, meth was a different level. Uh, it was, it made me crazy. Uh, I ended up in psychosis for two, three weeks at a time. I put in like psychiatric wards and even then like spending that much in, in psychosis and thinking shit's going on, reading the newspaper and like there's a plot to get me. And like I had military mates coming and seeing me and like uh, I was staying with a really good friend who um, who wanted to help at the time and like I thought they will Plotting against me and doing shit like absolute madness, but this is what the drug does to you. Like you, you lose who you are. Um, the sleep deprivation, the, the the high you get from it is you're on a different level, and that's absolutely destroys you. And you end up doing something crazy to someone, thinking you just lose total perception of reality. And that was my first exposure. To like, okay, I'm starting to lose my mind. And uh, um, my cousin actually, um, she spoke to me. She's like, John, we we're worried you won't come back one day. Like you'll be, you'll fry yourself. But then, still, it wasn't enough. Um, wasn't enough to stop me. I'd still, once I got clean and my clarity come back, I'd pick up again because you gotta remember, it's survival. It's the thing mm. that I think I think I needed to survive. But it's just, it's how addiction works. It, it totally dis- distorts your reward system, how you see things, um, your morals, your realities. It's, it's a, it's a, like the devil, right? It's, um really, really harsh um, process you've got to go through. Yeah, when you speak about these times, you know, you're doing your rehab, you come out, you clean for a couple of weeks. What would it take, like someone literally or you see an ad or you see something and or someone would go, do you want a bit of this? And then that's it. That's fucking game over. It's back into the cycle again. Yep. So in early recovery, are you looking for any trigger? So any trigger is an ad or – Just anything uh, any ex- to do with drugs. Any excuse. Yeah. Or addiction, any, yeah. Any – 
any excuse. So now I know what it takes to do the work. You got to protect yourself. You don't go catch up with mates. You don't go don't go to the pub. You don't go out at night time. You don't you know, go to your grandma's and she's drinking a glass of wine. You've got to not see it because you seeing it activates and it's you gotta remember this is more powerful than you. So until you get months and years of clean time up and then you're bigger than it, uh, it's it's really like any excuse. So fight it was always generally a fight with a girlfriend or a partner who can instigate me. And then that would give me permission, and then I'm off to the races. As soon as that one, game over. I, That's it. Anywhere from a month to 12 months later is when I stop. Fucking hell. You're like, Frank the Tank on steroids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally, mate. Like, it was, it was dangerous. One's too many, a hundred's not enough. And then I'd get to the point where I was like up to three bottles of vodka a day, yeah, with like four or five Fuck grams of cocaine. hell. Yeah, man, I, I mate um, took me to the hospital. Oh, he, he collected me from the hospital one day, I think. And I uh, know oh, he, he, he collected me, and uh, I was clinically dead. My alcohol level was that high. Uh, <laughs> yeah, man, just like I would drink just so much, um, so fast, and just try to operate. And then, and when you when you've done that, you're just on a different level. You're not you. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. you've done these fifteen fucking rehabs. Where is the point in your life? You know, where you go, if I keep doing this, I'm fucking dead. Like, or, you know, where's the light switch? Where's the the change? When, so three years. All, the, all these experiences have been building up, building up. And what happened was I came to, in 2020, I came, I went to Poland with a mate to go and get an antibuse injection, right? So antibuse is... If you take the medication, you can take it orally or you can get an injection. They won't do injections in Australia, but if you take it and you drink, it makes you really, really sick. So it's a deterrent, but you can you still drink on it and still get sick. So I had in my in, in my crazy thinking on drugs and that. So I'll go to Poland, I'll get an antibuse injection, I'll stop make I'll forcibly stop drinking, and then I can work on giving up the drugs. So I went to Poland, hooked into the appointment. Do you think I went? I went to the appointment. <laughs> Not no. a chance. Not a fucking chance. So, yeah, just turned it on. Uh, what happened was, uh, I'd see. I've been seeing a girl for some time from Spain. We're married now, actually. Uh, a lot of my success and rehab and um, recovery is, is owed to her because she stuck by me. Um, but she uh, she was from Spain. I'd been over here, met her family. I was in Europe, so I came through, uh, flew through Italy got to Spain and then realised this COVID thing was going on and, like, like literally I got in and a couple of days later, borders closed. Um, you couldn't – like, I, I was in a hotel. We had to leave the hotel. I was on the street for a few weeks. I got pneumonia on the streets. Um, it was a crazy fucking time, man, in, in Spain because it was, like, um, on the front, right, where people – a lot of people were mm. dying. And so I went uh, – I ended up getting stuck here. I couldn't get back to Oz. I ended up getting an apartment in uh, Barcelona, so I was staying in, a, in like in, in a real bad area, bad, mad, bad contacts. Went into bad addiction, got really, really crazy. End up doing a rehab. So I got my girlfriend had come back to we got back together at this stage. She came back to Spain, put me in a rehab. Um, got out after four weeks, relapsed again, and then when she left me, uh, I picked up using drugs even harder. And I went into bad psychosis, uh, and this is when I all stopped. So uh, I was in a hotel, 
and I thought shit was happening to me. So I thought my mates were going to do a, like a, a DA on me and whack me. Yeah. So I'm crazy, crazy thinking. Um, I end up, the hotel staff end up calling the police. The police took me to hospital. I was handcuffed in the hospital. I could shoot myself absolutely fucking crazy. Like they had to sedate me. Um, and I remember being in hospital handcuffed and that was where I was like, like I'm not going to come out of this. If I do come out of this, I'm going, I'm going back to rehab and I'm going to try to do this because it was, that's, it was, I was fried, absolutely fried. Then that was it. I got out. I um I had to when I got out of that hospital, I went back to the rehab I was at. I was that anxious and shaking in that that I took like hand sanitizer from the hospital and I'm drinking that in the taxi, trying to calm my nerves, alcohol from the from the hospital to calm my nerves, get to the rehab and I'm like, I'm bad. And then um give me all the medications. I did my my time there. I left and then I worked a program of recovery. And this here I am three years later. I, I surrendered. That's the key thing. You got to surrender. You can't. I can't. And it's hard for military, especially us guys, to mm. surrender to something because we don't surrender. We tactically treat or whatever the fighting yeah. withdrawal. Ta- ta- fighting withdrawal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was hard concept for me, but it was the only way forward. And that was where I understood like I need to um, surrender to this. And here I am working a program every week. I've got to go to a group. I and now I work in recovery and I help people. Uh, the same, uh, you were going through the same thing as me. Which is wild. How was that first, I guess, six months to a year? Because, you know, your turnaround Tough. time was probably, you know, four months away, clean, yep. one month of fucking turning it on, a couple months of turning it on. So how was that first year? Tough. Yeah, really tough. Um, I didn't think I was going to make it. Uh, I had to grip my teeth a lot. Um, I was doing therapy three times a week. It was tough. Um, and this is in Spain was- too. Yep, in Spain. So, so I'm not work, Australia. Work, no, no, this is in Spain. Um, yeah. Like I, I, I accepted I was stuck here. Uh, I accepted Australia wasn't the best place for me uh, because of my old stomping ground, old connections. So me and my partner and my wife now, we decided we're going to stay here. She got pregnant not long after. So like let's see if we can make a life here. Uh, so that the, um, having my daughters definitely helped. And um, but it was the first twelve months is tough. Any anyone who's gone through it always got to go through it. If you can get through twelve months, that's the hard work, and then it gets easier, much easier. Fucking hell, mate! I, like it's 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 admirable that you're talking about this. You know what I mean? Like as we spoke about earlier, it was only a trigger of talking about you know saying the the word meth, and that was in your mind already to go out and fucking get it. And now you're at that stage where you can talk about it and. Fuck, it's just, it's almost like you're talking about another human being, if you know what I mean. You're talking about another human yeah. being that, you know, was you, but it feels like someone else. Yeah, I, I had to get to the point where I needed to talk about it. And Originally, I'd talk about me back then and I would have anxiety and I would start to feel like I was that person. But now I understand I'm not that person. I did, I was under the influence and I did horrible things, but it, me is now like doing the right thing. I'll give you an example. Like I, I'm working, uh, I've worked with different people in recovery and like I had to go deal with someone who um, who went to their place and like they were doing cocaine in front of me and here in Spain. I'm like, I had to sit there and I'm talking through them and like, okay, we need to get you into a treatment. And it's, and like automatically in my head I'm like, oh, is that any good? <laughs> That's what goes in my head but I can pause and have some space. I'm like, 
that's not me anymore. Like I can be around, I can be around drugs now, and it's I don't need to feel the urge to pick up. So it's been a process, man. Like don't do that in early recovery, but now I've got some time up. Um, I disassociate. It's not that's not me anymore. And it's uh, time. Time definitely helps. Yeah, fuck, mate. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. And you know, you, you've been three years clean now, still working through your programs. Like, and this is just going to carry on for the rest of your life. Yep, I accept it. You know, um, like, yeah, like, sorry, mate, I don't want to yep. jump in, but, you know, there are people out there that have been clean for three, five, six, seven years and then, fuck, click of a finger, they're back into it again. You, could, yep. you know. Yeah, so you've got, to, um, you've got to understand this is for the rest of your life now. Um, and a lot of people who relapse, it's generally they haven't done the work. So generally, and, like, there can be some monumental things happening in life which trigger you and, just lead you back there. But generally, like, you need to be get comfortable with who you are, sit with yourself, understand that, like, picking up and using alcohol and drugs is the tip of the iceberg. Like, it's, it does something for you. But generally, it's from something that's residing inside you. Yeah? Like, it's a discontent, anxiety. It all comes from something which you're not, you're not content about. So you use alcohol and drugs to master, to deal with it. So if you can deal with the reason the real reason, then you can be at peace. And um, for ages, man, like this restless, irritable, discontent, all these feelings I've had for a lot of my life, even when I was a kid. And now I know I used exercise when I was a kid for this because exercise helps calm me. It helps um, regulate me uh, and, it, and builds up resilience and lowers um, uh, heightens cortisol to start, but then lowers it in your exposure to stressful situations. Exercise helps. So I was doing this all my life, but now I know how to regulate myself properly and um, I understand what's required. But uh, it's, yeah. Yeah. And then having a child, mate, I'm sure that, that, you know, that clears your mind on basically where you're going to take the rest of your life, mate. Cause now you're a role model for this child. As you said, you growing up, you kind of, you almost mimicked your father's drinking habits in a way. You know, now you're the role model to show for your child to what the rest, you know, what, her future is going to entail, really? Exactly, yeah. Monkey see, monkey do. Like we uh, generally follow the paths of them, our father and our ancestors and that. And it's a gener- gener- it's like generational. It gets passed mm. on. So I've got, I've got the opportunity to break that link, not pass this on. Um, and as well, like when I was in that hospital, handcuffed and sedated, and there's one of the things that comes from my head is I always wanted a family. I always wanted this opportunity to um, be a father, um, be a father and be a role model for the way I think it should should be done. And um and that was definitely played a part and when my wife got pregnant, this definitely helps me keep on the right path. And uh, definitely now with what I do and um being a role model for other people and how to live life and um a lot of my basis is my military um way of living, my structure, routine, discipline is it's all based on what I learned along along the life and experience. But having a kid definitely helps, but it shouldn't be the reason you get mm, clean and sober. Yeah, exactly. It needs to be for you or it won't last, but it yeah. definitely helps. Mate. definitely helps. Yeah, that's incredible, mate. That's incredible. Now, you moved into – you got back into the fitness world. Now you're super fit, no booze, no, no drugs, absolutely clean probably. Actually, in regard to your body, was there any permanent damage that – any of this done, like to your liver or anything? Did you get bloods done and stuff like that? I got out pretty scot-free. Um, yeah, like I had to go – I went through everything. Um, 
there's some issues with some white blood cells, which they don't really know what has basically ruled out leukemia, but uh, they don't really know what's happening. I'm, I've, I've got appointments again with hematologists to really find out what's happening here, but I don't I don't think that's from alcohol drugs. But once you put down and you start to detox, a lot of your levels come back. Um, you, you enter a bit more of a homeostasis state. The biggest thing for me was my cortisol. It was ridiculously high for about a year. So I would wake up like two, three times a night, which my heart rate would be around 140, 150. And I'd be having these attacks. It was just cortisol, just from stress, uh, because synthetic like um, cocaine and like synthetically just boosting my stress response and then not having downtime from war and contracting and then drugs just spiral. But things leveled out. Um, but no, my, my memory and my clarity took a long time to come back. Retaining information was impossible for the first 12 months. I thought I was a bit brain dead, uh, but uh, it, it all comes back with time. Mm. So now you're pretty much a personal trainer. You, you do a bit of this um, uh, recovery stuff, uh, helping others, but you're in a, basically you compete in a sport that's called high rocks. And I've, now I've followed obviously your Instagram and I see all this. It looks fucking, well, it's kind of like a, kind of like a CrossFit. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I don't know. People might get sad if I, Call it CrossFit. I don't know. It looks the same. That looks the same. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. It's like it's 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 like a competitor, but uh, it's functional fitness. Uh, yep. It's it's hybrid fitness racing. So basically, what that means is like it's a running component, and then there's a strength strength endurance component. Um, it's re- pretty new. It started in Germany six years ago. It's a new concept, and it's come to Australia now. It's going to be huge in Australia because Australia likes to run, but. Um, yeah, I got drawn to High Rocks because it, it's tough. It's hard. You got to like I'm, I turned myself into identify it's like a middle distance sort of ten k runner, but I have the strength. Um, not not as a crossfitter, but I have uh, good overall strength, um, which enables me to do what I do. So our racing is really hard. Um, in a short sort of time frame, I've become elite what they call it. So I'm like in the top 15 guys in the world. I've got six of the world champs. Yeah, right. Holy back, shit. In, back, in, back in May. So now there's more money involved. Uh, the sponsors coming on board. It's growing huge because of the the running component and the strength. So in CrossFit, you've got Olympic lifting. It's technical. You've got to spend years as a power, like power, um, Olympic lifting, uh, doing so much strength to get to where those guys are. With us, uh, you don't need to be quite as strong, but you have to be able to run. So a lot of people know how to run, and it comes back quite fast. So you've got the cardiovascular benefits as well as the strength. So um, running is now it's a medicine for me. I run pretty much every morning. I ran before I jumped on here. Um, it's part of my life. I trained to be a runner. I've become quite good at it. But the, the toughness of this is that, Maintaining a high intensity for I'm, I'm racing in about, about high 57, 58, 59 minutes. So that's where I'm at. Um, and it's just really tough. And the guys who do this, we're all sort of in our mid 30s, very experienced, just hardened guys. And my background in special forces uh, definitely helps me do what I what I do. And that mentality and the mindset of being able to uh, sit at above 90% threshold for 40, 50 minutes, which is really, really tough to do. The best athletes in the world are the ones who can do this. I've, I've sort of achieved that and got to that level and I'm going to um, hopefully get get even better, but it's a really good uh, concept. And if you haven't seen it, 
you'll see it in Australia next next year. I have four or five races there. It's going to grow huge. Yeah, right, mate. Might see you back in Australia then. Maybe. Yeah, look, um, we might even, like, my wife really loves Australia. Like, she's Spanish, but she loves Australia. I, I like Spain because it, what, what it's done for me, it's really mm. chilled lifestyle over here. Uh, the, like 300 days of sunshine here in the Mediterranean. Yeah, good food. Um, so to, yeah, good food. Yeah, uh, and it's cheaper. Woman. Yeah, <laughs> they're fiery, but they're fiery, man. So, <laughs> yeah. so, and then my, my daughter's um, a Mallorquina now, so she's uh, identifies as like their, their cultural sort of year, but she's half half English, Australian, half Spanish, so she'll yeah. we'll see if she gets, yeah, we'll see what she turns out like. But, yeah. um, no, I, 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 I enjoy living here, but my wife wants to go back to us, so maybe we go back there one day, but right now, this this living where I'm living now is giving presented a good opportunity, and it's yeah, mate, where yeah. I can see my family, um, yeah, developing a family and having stability, which is another key thing. Like I never had, I haven't had stability since I left home when I was joining lottery. I haven't been in one place for more than a year. Yeah, so this is, yeah. just a just a in there. You, now you're setting your own pattern, a good behaviour pattern. That's right. That's right. New associations, new way of living, yeah. new, a new a new program. So I'm rewriting my new program. Yeah, right, mate. This has been absolutely fucking wild. Like, it's again really just good to hear. Like, it's it's a, I guess a rare story. Um, I wouldn't say a rare story. It's a rare story that's been told. Now that I know there's a lot of guys out there struggling, and I know there's cops out there right now, and fireys and ambos that are probably going through. There's probably one one or two people out there going through the exact same thing as they're going through now. So hopefully. They get to listen to this and, you know, see that there is a, a bright side out there, um, you know, on the other side of things. So, mate, just to tie it off, mate, a couple of final questions. Mate, in this first question, I guess there's no fucking better person to ask this question. You know, what advice can you give to people just to keep on keeping on, complete any goal they set their mind to and just to crush it in life? Again, mate, you've gone from young uh, kid to commando straight away as, you know, as a 22-year-old fucking absolutely written yourself off, you know, from that, you know, 27 to, you know, early 30s period of drugs and almost killing yourself and overdosing, I'm sure, and now successfully three years clean and absolutely fucking fit as a motherfucker. And I'll see that shit on Instagram, <laughs> mate, I've got no chance. <laughs> yeah, look, advice is just to, to stick to something. First, there needs to be, you need to be able to, uh, see it and what you want to achieve, right? So what I do is I like to write write it down, so what I want to achieve. And so this needs to happen in stages, right? So you want to climb Everest. You don't look at the Everest and you go, okay, I'm walking, and just start walking towards it. So there's got to be steps along the way. So these steps have to be um, not massive steps, but they need to be achievable. So get to the first step and get to the second and get to the third. Eventually you get to base camp. And then you can start going higher, but this takes time. Knowing that you, <clears throat> it's not it's not one day that sort of makes makes a difference. It's weeks, it's months, it's years. So understanding where I want to be is something I write down, and then I have a process and a stage, and writing these steps down and celebrating the wins along the way. Yeah, um, and it's a bit cliche, but people say it's like it's about the journey, and it and it really is. Um, and this is why a lot of people have a goal. They achieve their goal, and it's like, what's next? And then they 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 crumble and their house falls down. And like people go to the Olympics, they get the gold medal, and then they fall off the wagon, go into addiction, and it's like that. 
they uh, they just lose it because they lose that purpose. So having steps along the way, celebrating those wins and gaining that experience, and then uh, I think a huge thing is giving back. But it's a daily grind um, and just not losing sight of the reason you started. So when you wrote down what you want to achieve, always have that, have a new wallet or have, you know, above my desk and just keep chipping away and just know that there's uh, any, any any obstacle you go along, you um, you have to uh, deal with along the way, it's all, it's all silver linings. Like life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. So these are all challenges which you can all use later on in life for more. When, when really bad shit happens, like I use all my experience from the military, from addiction, from my childhood to deal with real scenarios which are happening now. So just gaining that experience and um, evidence all along the way that you can do it and just keep chipping away. Consistency is key to achieve anything. Consistency. Yeah, awesome. Um, mate, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Mate, uh, second question, what is the plans for the future? Now, mate, I know you're getting on in life, you know, 37, 38 the body can't do this forever, mate, as much as you'd love so, to. Yeah. So, mate, um, I reckon I've got a few more years competing at the level I am now. Yep. The reason for that is in addiction, like I punished my body, my organs, my brain, but I didn't punish my – even though in the, in the military, like uh, I've got – in my right knee, I've got no cartilage in the outside of it. <laughs> um, like I can still run because I've got my legs strong. But eventually, when I, if I stop strength training, it'll go back to hurting mm. when I walk. And I've just got myself to a capacity now. But I've got another two, three years at my level elite. Uh, I coach people now, um, which I enjoy doing that. Um, for the future, man, I'd like to – I'm always going to compete at something because it's part of my identity and I love getting after it. I love competing against myself and other people. But I'd like to move into – uh, like I am helping people now, but on a bigger scale. Um, I think my, uh, I'm starting to tell my story a lot more now, and I think there's there's some nuggets in there for a lot of um, the younger generation. So doing some talking, um, doing giving back a little bit and helping other people. So in whatever format that is, I think it will evolve a lot more over the next few years. But working in some type of environment where I get to share my story and experiences, Essentially, that's where I want to head and um, just help, help help people because helping people allows me to remind myself who I was, what I went through, and keeps gives me a purpose. And that's ultimately in life. We need purpose. And that's how we keep moving forward. Without purpose, what are we doing here? So ultimately, that's to help and give back in some format. Yeah, mate, that's that's awesome. I, I really think you should get into that uh, that uh, keynote speaking space at least especially if you do come back to Australia, mate, because as you know, the culture here in Australia, when it comes to drugs and alcohol, it's it's fucking rife at the moment. I guess the worst part is that these drugs are not like the drugs back in the 80s or the 90s. It's it's getting worse. They're made in fucking dens in someone's backyard and it's just filthy now. So it's uh, definitely, I think you're speaking, even this story itself, you know, you've definitely got something to tell, tell and share and obviously help people So because you've lived it. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing, right? Um, like I've got lived experience. And like even when I went to rehabs and working with psychologists and counsellors, and they're like they haven't, you really give less credit. You listen less to someone who hasn't walked it. Hundred percent. Like they they got they got the clinical side, but they don't really know. And like when you get a therapist who's like, yeah, I was an addict for twenty years, and you're like, ah, oh, you, you're gonna understand what I went through. This is. Yep. 
it's like, yeah, okay, now we've got to report on the same level. So now I've done, I, I, I was bad, I was really bad, but then I walked the walk. Now I've got some, got some cred to, um, to be able to uh, help people. So that's essentially what, where I'm at. Yeah, awesome, mate. Mate, third question. Now, this one's just to bring you back down to being just a normal dude, you know, outside of being a badass, outside of anything else, mate, mate, a guilty obsession or, you know, something you do these days, you know. I'm just, you're a fit guy, so I reckon you probably like eating KFC or something, something dirty. <laughs> Treat yourself. Mate, I, I eat a lot, yeah. Um, and it, to be honest, it's one of my first addictions when I was young, but – and like with the work I do, and uh, if anyone starts following me after listening to this, you'll see, like I train like an endurance athlete, but I do stretch training as well. Like I'm daily four or five thousand calories, so I eat a shitload. Um, and man, I, I went, I went nearly four months eating ice cream every night. <laughs> yeah, like that's and not many people know that. Yeah, but they're like, oh, you must, you must eat, like look after yourself. You must, uh, like you must eat like a god. I mean, like I need calories. Like I need it. Yeah, like I, I, I burn through it. So it doesn't really worry me. I'll eat, I eat pizza often, man, hamburgers, um, yeah, but ice cream every night for months. It's, yeah. It's, it's not, so that's a bit of an obsession. <laughs> Especially in Spain, mate. Like I was only there maybe a year or two years ago and fuck, mate, the, you literally just, I was, I went to, I was in Barcelona, a bit of time in Madrid. You just walk down the alleys and there's just these great little, just restaurants you can just mung out on and. Far yeah, man, out yeah, food. yeah, cheap, 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 seafood. cheap as well. Yeah, yeah, man, it just all comes out. You hook in. Um, the diet is like a sort of, the Mediterranean is like sort of high fat, uh, which I don't really subscribe to that too much. But uh, the food is it's good, cheap, and it's fast. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy everything yeah. about here, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy we talk about addiction because my addiction is fast food, far out. Jesus, yeah, it's, man, it's, like it's, it's going to be the downfall of me. Bro. It is. But it, it, it is, is addiction, man. Like it, it's um, it's all the same. Like through our first addiction, comfort eating, and then exercise. Come at a young age, like it's coping mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, man. Like in video games, um, gaming, like NFTs, all this shit. Where it's, it's the same. It's the same process. Yeah. It's lipid system. You're getting messed up, fucked up, man. But That's um. It. Mate, yeah. it's it's funny because my my phone is sitting right here, right here, and a text from Red Rooster just popped up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, that, there's my addiction, fucking, and that's yeah. just giving me the subliminal messaging. And I just I was already pre-planning doing exactly what you did, pre-plan for my fucking yeah, drive home, pick up the kids. I'm going to go Red Rooster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I might need chicken. help, mate. Yeah. I need help. <laughs> well, you, you can balance this. Yeah, there's a balancing act. So your life should be about balance. So if you can. Do a run a bit later, or go lift some weights. Then you're sort of you're negating it, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 nah, <laughs> <laughs> mate. Uh, yes, yeah, right. There you go. So ice cream, ice cream every night, uh, mate. Fourth question. Just throw this one in. Favorite uh, military movie or TV show? Yeah, there's always that one movie that every every bloke watches. You know. Back in our time, I suppose it was Band of Brothers. The TV show was a big deal. Yeah, I didn't watch watch heaps of it. To be honest, um, yeah, I fucking love no, it. No, no, like, man, my, the first the first real one was uh, an Australian one, which I watched that quite a lot. Was Gallipoli? Oh, yeah, mate. The, oh, fuck the, yeah. The, the, run, the original the runner, one. He, yeah, the original That's one. That's right. Yep. Young yep. Will Gibson. He was the runner, and he used to have yeah. The, that that I watched that a lot when I was young, and I, I never even thought about Jesus. Asked that, 
that probably showed yeah. me a little bit as well. Uh, like knowing you get out of those pits and running towards enemy fire, like knowing you're going to get whacked is as it's crazy and heroic and like it's stupid all at the same time, right? But um, yeah, that I guess that that's the only one that comes to mind. Yeah, like I've yeah. obviously watched heaps and stuff, and uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny when you talk about that that movie because you know, you know during the Gallipoli and all those even those other places that they did these charges, they pretty much got half half cut before they did it. You know they they sat there and smashed the rum down just to calm those nerves and send it. So you know that's that's a military culture. Yeah, man. Like uh, maybe these, these, I'm sure these, it gets told in in our in our schooling system. Like I remember being taught, but I wonder if it still does. But and it's like many many. Really young guys, like younger than me, going to war, knowing you're not coming back. Yeah, fucking wild. Different, different, different wild. world, man. Different world, definitely. Yeah. Mate, uh, <laughs> if people want to get in contact with you, they can find you obviously on social media. Yeah, mate. Pretty much, I use uh, Instagram. Um, um, yeah, man. Like, I don't really Facebook. I don't really use heaps. My web page seems to drop down every now and then. I've paid some bloke in Argentina, and it's. Fucking- <laughs> uh, <laughs> I need, to, I need to sort this out and get get it back on, but I think it's down now. But Instagram, so um, John Wynn Fitness and Sobriety. Uh, yeah, and I'll, John Wynn, that's like, – uh, yep, sorry, uh, John is J-O-N. Yes, so J-O-N-W-Y-N, Fitness and Sobriety. I changed my handle just because fitness is my life now, but I need people – I want people to know that sobriety is a big factor of it. Um, yeah, basically, almost most of my content's on there. Uh, and then hopefully in the future I'll be very YouTube stuff, but um, – it's just it's busy, you know, life of um, a father and working and training. It's uh, trying to get this all in is a little tough. <laughs> yeah, definitely, mate, definitely. Mate, again, really appreciate you giving me your time and, you know, eventually we, we made this work. It's been an absolutely fucking just wild, hectic story again, mate. I'm, I'm so privileged to have you on and just to share this because, again, mate, I'm sure there's someone out there that this is going to actually make an effect or, you know, maybe help. So that's that's the biggest positive when it comes out of this podcast. I hope so. That's one here. Uh, give back. It helps me, um, and hopefully, it helps other people because there's a there's some some good experience there, and I hope someone can take something for it. That's why I keep turning up and doing it. It's it's, it's not an effort at all, and I enjoy it. So thanks, mate. Having some mate, it's been a, been an honour and a privilege. No, awesome, mate. Appreciate it. All right, well, we'll uh, mate. Next time I'm in Spain, let's catch up, mate. Come, come, easy, <laughs> Ben, Ben. <laughs> All right, dude. I'll speak to you soon. Uh, adios. Gotcha. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, you've got some merchandise, and just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is – forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So 
while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now, look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 3 coffeecomau and grab yourself a supply.